Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, September 26, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Uh, kind of an interesting uh, back and forth yesterday between the Gamecocks and, and volunteers. I want to ask our Clemson faithful, because I can't answer this by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, South Carolina is your in-state rival, but they're not your conference foe. It's kind of a, it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a Florida, Florida state sort of situation. It's a, um, uh, you know, the two in-state rivals are in separate conferences of one another. Florida would be different because you got Miami down there. So you've got a big old state with three big, uh, universities, two of which have pretty loyal fan bases. The hurricanes, not so much. It's a pro sports town, but, um, I've concluded Dr. Will Bowl to be here. He's a Tennessee graduate. Yeah. Um, yeah, good week to have Bolt here, mm-hmm. but, but I'm convinced that aside of Clemson and I know Gamecock fans, I know it's Georgia, it's Georgia, that there's, there's more animus that there, there's more resentment. There's more emotion in the Tennessee game for some reason every year than there is any other game. Tennessee doesn't much care for us. We don't much care for Tennessee. Um, once again, uh, geographically and historically Georgia would be the team that you'd say, okay, um, the biggest rivalry is Clemson. The second biggest is Georgia, but there's just, I don't know that there, there's some unspoken resentment and um, I don't know, just, you know, the, uh, the storyline of the Gamecock faithful were cheering when um, uh, the kid from Tennessee, the quarterback got hurt last year. Yeah, I don't remember well, that, that at all. But, but Gamecock fans believe that they were mocking Marcus Lattimore. Remember, Lattimore got hurt in the remember. Tennessee game years yep. and years and years ago. That horrific knee injury mm-hmm. uh, that happened. And, um, I mean, who does Clemson feel that way about? I mean, if there's if there's bad blood, here I go. You know, I'm trying to stir up some, um, some, uh, some energy for the game. If there's bad blood, quote, unquote, between the Gamecocks and Volunteers, who is there bad blood with uh, with Clemson? And I'm not a fan. Is it North Carolina? I mean, I would imagine... Uh, there's a long-standing one-sided rivalry in basketball and somewhat one-sided in football. But is that um? And I get the geographic, historical nature of the Georgia game. I do. I mean, I you know, Georgia's been a rivalry of South Carolina's even before the Gamecocks uh, joined the SEC. It was one of the highlight games, one of the circle the you know on the uh, circle the game on the schedule when the schedule comes out game. Uh, it would have been Clemson and then Georgia. But I think the Tennessee game has taken on a flavor of its own because, once again, um, I mean, I don't think Tennessee's happy Marcus Lattimore got hurt. I don't think Gamecock fans are happy that um, I think his last name was Hooker got hurt in the uh, in the game last year. But um, but I saw, I saw the meme yesterday, and I guess this is obviously coming out of Tennessee. What where, mean, is, where they this bulletin, it's, bulletin board material. Yeah, you know, It's personal payback time, and they were claiming that Gamecock fans cheered when their quarterback got hurt last year in, in Columbia. But but the Gamecock fans accused the Tennessee faithful of mocking Marcus Lattimore right. I remember when that. he had the injury, you know, against the But the I, was, I was in the crowd in Columbia last year for that wonderful Tennessee game. I'd already left. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I was there. But I, I remember the place, you know, just a hush went over the place. And I remember saying, oh, man, I don't want him to get uh, hurt. No, nobody wants people to get hurt. You know, no, I mean, I, you're a lousy fan if you go to celebrate, um, right. you know, another kid from another team. I'm um, getting injured. Anyway, so it's they a, use that um, to motivate their, sure they their do. players I mean, and I get fans that. too. But I get that. But I was thinking about okay, 
the Gamecocks in Tennessee have this flavor about yeah. it. What game is similar to that with the Clemson? Um, you know, is it North Carolina? Is it NC State? Is it um, Syracuse? Is there another team that I'm not very aware of that Clemson has this sensation or feeling uh, associated with? I'll tell you, Tiger fans, and I'm not being a Gamecock homer, be careful this Saturday. Something, I mean, I've been following college football a long, 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 long time. And the Tigers outplayed Florida State. Clemson should have won that game, but they didn't. And you can't let that loss cost you another game. Um, th- there's an old saying in college football, put that loss behind you. Don't let that loss lose you another game. And I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm obviously not at Clemson's practice, so I don't know how they're preparing, how they're reacting, responding but I just know that this game has the features, the characteristics of a game that you got to be careful with, just extremely careful, um, especially going to Syracuse, C- kind of a weird place, not a hotbed, not a mecca of college football. And you kind of go there, and next thing you know, you're sleepwalking, third quarter, and you're in a uh, in a dogfight. Did, didn't Syracuse beat Clemson in like one of their – undefeated seasons except for the Syracuse yeah, game a few years ago. Yeah, and it was one ago. of those matchups. I mean, yeah. it's one of those matchups. It was a surprise. There, there was, there, there's something Syracuse does in their offense yeah. to get – I mean, it gave Venable's defense a lot of problems. I don't know why, but there's some – I mean, at times there's matchups. There's philosophy matchups, personnel matchups that just, you know, uh, I'll say this, Rev. I think the Phillies are a bad matchup of the Braves. I, I, I mean, you believe that. I'm not, I, I can hear when you talk about it. Oh, yes. I think the Braves are better than the Phillies, but the Phillies are a hard matchup for the mm-hmm. Braves. There, there's just some matchup issues there that concern me or concern anybody if you are a, a, a Braves fan. Uh, we're going to jump around a bit today. Um, I don't know that there's an issue out there. Well, I, mean, I guess the biggest political factoid out there today is the a couple of things, the debate. Tomorrow night, we know who's going to be on the stage now. Um, we know Trump has a, you know, a um, a planned performance at the same time of the presidential debate. He's going to address some of the UAW workers. Um, the House Oversight Impeachment Inquiry announced yesterday that they're going to, I mean, they, they announced their first three witnesses. And I think it's Thursday with the impeachment, the House Oversight Impeachment the, the House Oversight Committee meets in regards to the impeachment inquiry, and they've announced the first three witnesses will be um, Bruce Dubinsky of Forensic Accounting, Eileen O'Connor, an assistant AG uh, with the DOJ Tax Division, and I think she's former, former assistant D, uh, attorney general with the AG's office, um, and she was a DOJ tax uh, advisor, or excuse me, tax. She was in the tax division doing um, investigative work. And then you've got Jonathan Turley, who was a George Washington law professor. Those are the three announced um, witnesses for the impeachment inquiry. The poll yesterday, I mean, I went back and read the majority of the poll that liberals are dismissing. And if you're a Trump voter, be very suspicious of the uh, of the poll. But I did see kind of an interesting factoid within and that is the approve disapprove i mean i went i really went through that poll yesterday to find out i mean it's an outlier i mean i think it's an outlier I mean, there's no way trump's up nine i mean i think the most ardent trump supporter would would would, would say no i mean i'm not buying that i mean it's going to be a hotly contested race it's going to be decided by four or five states 
a quarter of a million voters, somewhere there about. I mean, that doesn't mean the margin will be a quarter of a million voters. The margin will probably be grand total of 50,000 voters, but a quarter of a million undecideds, unaffiliates will will um, will choose the next president of the United States. But there's there's a very interesting number uh, inside uh, the uh, the ABC News Washington Post poll. Trump's approval disapproval. Um, 48 approve of Trump. 49 disapprove. So he's underwater one. I mean, he's, he's what we call minus one. Biden's minus 19. I mean, that's a big number. When Trump left office, the last ABC News Washington Post poll had his approved disapprove at 38 and 60. So 60% of Americans disapprove. Now, that's during COVID. I mean, everybody's mad about everything when you're having one of these calamities and you blame the guy at the top of the uh, the food chain. So, and in 26, excuse me, in 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, Trump's last six months in office were dominated by COVID, but he didn't have 91 felonies and four indictments. So in the process, and this is why I find so interesting. So in the process of 91 felonies and four indictments, Trump's approval number has gone from 38 to 48. His disapprove has gone from 60 to 49. I mean, explain that. I mean, somebody explain that to me. I mean, I've beat around politics for 20 years. I mean, I think I have a decent grasp. I can't explain that. I mean, how does a guy's approve go up 20 percentage points with 91 felonies and four indictments. When it's a politically motivated well, I mean, attack. That's the only thing you can discern. And when you look at independents, I mean, the independents are 3%. I mean, I've used the number 1.75. That's the only data point I've seen. The third indictment increased Trump's numbers by independent or with independent voters by one and three quarter. He's up about four percentage points with independents. So independent voters that's in America. That's the part that's very interesting. It's, 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 it's unbelievable to me. I mean, maybe, maybe they're turning away from Seinfeld just long enough to say, this is nonsense. I mean, this is craziness. Uh, yeah, the guy peddled influence, and yeah, the guy probably had a hand in it, but 91 felonies and four indictments? But it's overkill. And here's what I want to be very careful of, and this is how I want to get to here. So if, if, the, if the independent voters in America today see the political witch hunt for what it is and Trump's approved, disapproved number – Goes from forty-eight to four, or from thirty-eight to sixty to forty-eight, forty-nine. A lot of numbers. Stick with me. Don't impeach Biden. Don't make Biden a sympathetic figure. That's who you want to run against in his current state. I, I, I would not. I would not aggressively pursue impeachment. I think that data point shows that the American public are very questioning of government going after someone. I mean, there's a perception that wow, okay. I mean, they target you and they go after you. And, and I, okay. I just think the the Seinfeld watcher once That's again, a twist guys, on that strategy. I mean, the, the, the Seinfeld that I watcher is not ideologically motivated. I mean, they're not tuning in every morning on an app to hear what some local conservative radio show has to say. I mean, they're they're not. You know, they know what songs Taylor Swift sings. They don't want to hear her opine on politics. We'll get to that yeah. in just a couple of minutes. She lectures her mom and dad. About, I mean, imagine being the parents of a kid who generates a billion dollars in income. <laughs> and she's still your kid. Mm-hmm. And in the back of your mind going, she doesn't know her ass from third base. <laughs> what she's talking, but she does generate a billion bucks and you're working for her and I'm working for her. You know what I mean? 
and we just bought us a um a new Lamborghini. Yeah. And we flew around the world twice, and you know Taylor did that for us, so we kind of got to tolerate a little bit of her nonsense, don't we? But but it's about Marsha Blackburn and Donald Trump. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting. Uh, Taylor Swift dominated NFL football. You got to be a big deal to show up at a football game and NFL fans forget about football. That's, right? That's true. I mean, you got to be a big deal. And she when, is, and by she's the way. A big, probably the biggest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's probably the biggest celebrity in America today. I mean, I, I would argue. Name somebody that, that more people pay attention to than Taylor Swift. I mean, it's shallow. It's nonsense. It speaks to the <laughs> to where the country's headed. But um, but Taylor Swift is in a dressing room, um, basically uh, debating with her family her political stances and positions. Let's do this, Josh. Let's play this first thing this morning. All right. Um, well, it's a minute 20. Yeah, let's do that. And then we'll take our break and come back. And um, I want to get back into this poll a bit because I just think the Republicans are making a mistake in aggressively pursuing impeachment. I understand the law requires you to pursue the truth. I mean, I get that. And if you believe there's crime or criminal activity centered around Hunter and Joe Biden, you got to pursue it to the ends of the earth. I mean, I understand that. Um, but it seems to me that the vindictive nature of humans is not going to be rewarded at the ballot box because, once again, Trump's disapproval was 60. After 91 felonies and four indictments, it's 49. And, and I just think you got to be careful with this impeachment inquiry that begins. So your strategy is, is basically reading the public mood toward government going after somebody, anybody, Versus the fact that the numbers would show Biden's weak, Trump's not as weak, so don't mess with that dynamic. Don't mess with the dynamic of Biden as an incompetent dunce. Right now, the public genuinely believes that Biden is an incompetent dunce who has no business being president. And I think impeachment inquiry clouds that central issue. Let Biden be an incompetent dunce. Let him be a demented old man. I mean, I just think that's the better way to beat him. And if you add impeachment into the mix, you can turn him into a sympathetic figure. They're out to get that old man. I mean, they're out to get that. that just let Biden. I mean, the perception is he's a crook. I mean, the polls clearly show that. Let that perception settle. Don't aggressively pursue impeachment. I mean, I understand you got bank records. And you've got forensic accountants, and you've got now a um, an assistant AG at the DOJ or former AG at the DOJ who was a specialist in their tax division. Jonathan Turley will argue the constitutional points and merits of the impeachment inquiry. I just think if you aggressively pursue, you you water down the fact that he is an incompetent dunce. And I think the ABC Washington Post polls an outlier. But I think the American people, there's nothing going to change their mind about him being an incompetent dunce. But if he's an incompetent dunce but a sympathetic figure, I think he's harder to beat. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, let's do sure. this. Just for entertainment purposes. I want to now I want to I want to figure out what I need to think about politics. So let's hear what Taylor has to say. Well, I mean, she's the biggest deal. Taylor Swift shows up at a Kansas City Chief football game, and then people forget about football. <laughs> they worry more about Taylor Swift. There's a report now. That she may have snuck out of the Kelsey family box in a popcorn machine. I, I saw that. Yeah. I mean, she, she's, a, she's, as we say in the country, you ready? She's a big deal. <laughs> she's a real big deal. But here's Taylor Swift. 
um, conversing or conversating with their parents about, um, you know, what should happen with Donald Trump, Marsha Blackburn, and take it from Taylor. She knows mm. what she's talking about. Let's, ready hear, to it. Let's hear it. So you think Taylor Swift comes out against Trump? I don't care if they write that. I'm sad that I didn't two years ago, but I can't change that. I'm saying right now that this is something that I know is right, and you guys, I need to be on the right side of history. And if he doesn't win, then at least I, I, at least I tried. Here's the, here's the problem. I just want to read you what I wrote, and I'm going to try to start. I just really want you to know that this is important to me. I totally agree with the issue. Have you heard first? Yes, I've read the entire thing, and the bottom line right now, I'm terrified. I'm the guy that went out and bought armored cars. I worry for her safety as much as anybody does, maybe more. It really is a big deal. She votes against against fair pay for women. She votes against the reauthorization of the of the Violence Against Women Act, which is just basically protecting us from domestic abuse and stalking, stalking. She votes. She thinks that that if you're a gay couple, or even if you look like a gay couple, you should be allowed to be kicked out of a restaurant. It's really basic human rights, and it's right and wrong at this point. And I can't see another commercial and see her disguising these policies behind the words Tennessee Christian values. Those aren't Tennessee Christian values. I live in Tennessee. I am Christian. That's not what we stand for. I need to do this. I need you to just I need you to forgive me for doing it because I'm doing it. I mean, imagine, imagine mm. if the parents <laughs> I put myself in these shoes last night. Taylor, let, let's think this thing through. <laughs> Here, I'm just going to level with you. Ready? Let's don't make that Trump crowd mad. I mean, let's let's not do this. Um, I mean, we're generating a billion dollars a year in revenue by you, you know, prancing around and singing on stage. Let's not goof this thing up. Let's get another billion. Let's get our second billion, and then you can be whoever you choose to be. Okay? I mean, you can do whatever you choose um, to do. Let's 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 wait until you see what Keith Richards said over the weekend about rap music. No, I he said that. he didn't care much for rap music because they don't like being yelled and screamed at. Okay, so so let's wait until we get as established as Keith Richards, and then we can say some of these things. I mean, we could hypothetically spend a billion bucks, Taylor. So let's not get the train. But but it's so it's so funny to watch the mom and dad. Oh yeah, I mean they they built this monster. You know what I mean? And they're they're you know they're they're dependent upon this monster, making sure she does her things and generates the revenue and sells out the concerts and and you know her. There's songs that are number one on the radio and iTunes and whatnot. And, and it's so fun to watch the mom and dad sit there going, is this smart or not? And the father is saying, Taylor, he's not saying this, but he's making a re- Let's not take that Trump crowd off. <laughs> uh, you know, let's just not do that. That's half of America. And, and I would rather when you go on the stage, there be a diverse group of people at your concerts instead of, you know, you basically offending half the country. And they, you know, they, what happened to Bud Light? You know, what happened right. to Target? What happened to, we don't need that problem here I'm surprised in our the world. Ne- the next thing Taylor didn't say was, but Bruce Springsteen did it. Yeah. The boss turned 74. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. O- over the weekend. Turned 74 that. over the weekend. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Now, I don't believe the oversight committee can neglect its responsibilities to we the people. I mean, there's indeed corruption and there is a distinct paper trail or some fact pattern that leads to Joe Biden. I think you've got to follow uh, the facts where they lead, but I would make it more about an investigation and less about 
you know, trying to disadvantage a political opponent. I, I just think you got to be careful there. I think the the independents now perceive the Trump indictments to be more about politics than pursuing the truth. So, so if if the if the House Oversight Committee can genuinely appear to be in search of the truth, in other words, the American people deserve to know this, whether or not Joe Biden was fundamentally dishonest in what he knew, what he didn't know, um, did he benefit, did he not benefit, but that's a fine needle to thread. I mean, that is a very fine needle to thread, and and the one advantage I think the oversight committee has, um, I mean, I think independence, I, I don't believe, and once again, this is not data, this is not analytics, I don't believe the independent voter has any sympathy for Trump. I think, practically speaking, they perceive this to be, you know, a guy that shows up and broke all the rules, or they're going to teach him a lesson. I mean, it's not sympathy. I think we're sympathetic to certain p- figures more than we are to others. Um, but but I do believe the independent-minded voter in America today, and I think the polls reflect this, believe that Trump's a jerk, he's a blowhard, he's narcissistic, but you still can't do that. I mean, you can't show me the man and I'll show you the crime. You know, that, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's Stalin, that's communism, that's dictatorship, that's banana republic, that's third world. We don't do that. Here. Now, but even the Seinfeld watcher going, ah, I, I don't, I don't care much for that. And I think if the if the oversight committee gets overzealous in its pursuit of, once again, you got the truth and you got Joe Biden, and how do you appear to be in search of the truth without trying to, you know, ding or disadvantage your political opponent? That's a, I mean, that's a fine needle to thread. I, I just think once again, in the in the interest of winning the presidency. Now, are we more interested in winning the presidency than pursuing the truth? Um, I am. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you what to be uh, motivated by, but I am. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, I'd rather have Trump in the White House and, you know, Biden not convicted of a crime than I had Biden convicted of a crime, but, you know, a Democrat in the White House. I mean, that's just my personal reflections and perspectives. But uh, but once again, I think Biden has the the potential to become somewhat of a sympathetic figure if they don't do this the right way. Now, now, is there an obligation that Congress has? Yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, Congress has. There's a reason it's called the House Oversight Committee. I mean, they have the, you know, they have the authority. They have the responsibility to, to, to police and oversee some of the affairs and shenanigans of the executive branch. And if they believe there's enough there there, then they've got to pursue in some way, shape, or form, you know, this investigation I just, I think the polling is clearly showing right now that there's nothing Biden can do to convince the American people that he's not an incompetent dunce. But if he's an incompetent dunce and a sympathetic figure, uh, it just complicates the uh, the presidential election more than more than I'd like to see it complicated because Trump's going to do that. I mean, Trump's going to complicate the election. At, uh, at some point in time, I did see yesterday, um, and we knew this last week. I think Jay and Philip sent me a text Thursday of last week. We didn't talk about it Friday because I think that news was going to be held for um, yesterday when Trump visits South Carolina, um, bought a gun, but said he didn't buy a gun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just I saw the video. I think he said, Can I buy this? Yeah, yeah. And then he said he did buy it. And then, they, oh, no, 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 we didn't buy that gun. Anyway. That's just how he rolls, and we're going to always deal with. Did you see the close-up picture of the gun? Uh, it had his face on it and said Trump 45. 
Why has it got his face on it? I, I guess it was a custom, custom designed gun. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. See that? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So they've engraved his face on a gun. That's what it looked like to me. Mm. Who did that? I, I I would say that's a loyalist. <laughs> Maybe is that so. fair to say? Maybe I mean, so. That, that would be a Trump loyalist. I mean, it's not a mass manufactured gun, is it? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, I got a picture of it right there. Okay. Um. Well, it's got his face on it. Of course, yeah. he wants it. Yeah. Um. Why wouldn't Trump want something with his <laughs> with his uh, with his mug on it? But but anyway, um. Out of the speech yesterday, or out of the event yesterday, as um as National Review said, at a motorboat company in South Carolina, I thought that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> at a motorboat company in South Carolina, um behind the schoolhouse. Right. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um Jay Jordan and Philip Lowe are now official endorsees uh, or endorsers of Donald Trump. Saw that. Yeah, they joined the list. Um, Attorney General Alan Wilson, Secretary of State Mark Hammond. Um, joined, uh, let me get this straight. Uh, governor McMaster had already been an endorser. Uh, Lieutenant governor Pamela Yvette had already been an endorser. Lindsey Graham has endorsed previously Donald Trump. So now you've got, I think the speaker of the house of South Carolina. I mean, think of this guys, you got a sitting Senator, former governor of South Carolina, um, running in the race. You've got all these policymakers, lawmakers that served with both Tim and Nikki supporting Donald Trump. Um, I mean, that kind of leads me to believe. And and here's, I guess, the way Trump wishes or hopes this thing plays out. He goes to Iowa and wins, not big, but wins. Goes to New Hampshire and wins, not big, but wins. Comes to South Carolina and wins, and it's over. I mean, if he wins Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, it's over. Um, you know, Iowa's the weird event. It's a caucus. Crazy things happen. Ted Cruz beat Donald Trump in 2016 in the Iowa caucus. Um, there's a belief, and you hear Chris Christie talking a little bit about this. It may be. It won't be for Christie. It may be for someone else. Um, that Iowa breeds momentum. We're, we're not having a national presidential primary. We have a state-by-state state primary, and one event could breed momentum for the next and the next and the next. Um, but if Trump wins Iowa and then New Hampshire – and then, I mean, he'll win South Carolina going away. It's over. I mean, there, there's no need to continue uh, much further. And he'll start deciding VP candidates and, you know, some of the other candidates will get out of the race. The um, I, I guess, Rev, the debate tomorrow night will offer someone other than Trump an opportunity to break through again. Um, most analysts believe that Nikki Haley had a good night in the first debate. Um Vivek Ramaswamy, good and bad. I mean, you know, depending on stylistically how you like the way he went about uh, aggressively making his case. Um, Mike Pence, dead in the water. Chris Christie, dead in the water. Asa Hutchinson didn't make the debate. Uh, this uh, made the first debate. I don't think he made uh, the most recent debate, so he can go get him a professorship at some university saying I'm a former presidential candidate. Gives him an extra twenty five grand a year, I would imagine. I mean, Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas, is worth X. Asa Hutchinson, former governor of Arkansas and former Republican candidate for president, gets him a bump in pay so he can go off and teach politics or history at one of these prestigious universities because he challenged Trump. I mean, that, that, you know, the, um, I mean, that, that increases his relevancy in that world. Um, Tim Scott dead in the water. I mean, I thought Tim would have a moment or two or three. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case. I don't know who took Tim's energy. 
Um, it looks to me that Tim not struggled, but did not do anything to separate himself in the first debate. Um, Nikki had a grasp. I mean, I think the reason Nikki got some uh, some momentum coming out of the first debate, there was a sincerity about her neoconservative bona fides. Now, you know, I would argue that Nikki's probably as ambitious as anybody on that debate stage. In a, in a, in a world of very ambitious people, she would be more ambitious than most. But, um, but she did seem to have a grasp and understanding of what she believed in, in, in foreign policy. I'm not saying I agree with her foreign policy. In fact, I don't agree with her. She's defending the neoconservatives and, and American imperialist foreign policy. But she did have a grasp and understanding of that. And she took on Ramaswamy when he said, you know, I'm sure the, um, the board appointment waiting on you at Raytheon will pay quite well. And she came back and talked about him being so naive and, you know, just not as informed as he needs to be about American foreign policy. And um, it, it'll be interesting to watch whether or not she can build upon her first debate performance. Um, now, once again, I'll, I disagreed with the point she made, but she made those points with a degree of understanding. I mean, it, th- these are complex matters, and I understand these complex matters. You may disagree w- with with my understanding, but but at least you got to give me credit that I do have you know, a sense of understanding. And I think voters by and large give someone credit for, I mean, if they believe you've done the work to understand the issue, that they'll give you the benefit of the doubt if they disagree with you. But if you just make it up as you go, as some appear to have, um, and don't have a grasp nor understanding of the issue at hand, you know, they'll kind of write you off and send you on, on your merry way. But, um, I think these things, they're like intellectual beauty contests, and she came across as very competent. Yeah, and, and competent would be the perfect word. I mean, once again, Josh, I disagreed with her defending the neoconservative foreign policy. Right, me too. But but she had a, you nor I can say, she didn't know what she was talking about. Exactly. I mean, we, we could easily say, I disagree with that. But you nor I could say, she didn't have a clue what she was talking about. I think Tim at times comes across as he really doesn't know what he's talking about. He's got a hallelujah grin. He's got a very likable personality. Um, he's a genuinely good guy, and, and that carries you a long way. And, and you can get elected dog catcher. I mean, you can get elected to a lot of offices. I've done that. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but running for president requires a certain sophistication. And I think Nikki came across as being sophisticated enough to, you know, step in and do and do the job. And then I think, once again, Josh, to your point, when she says things and you know she served in a diplomatic role in the Trump administration as ambassador to the United Nations, you, you, you got to believe, okay, I mean, I, I'll give her that. And, and I think she, she left that debate stage separating herself from a lot of unserious candidates Here's a serious lady. Here's a lady that, once again, um, I know Nikki not well, but I know her having run for office simultaneously. Nikki and I, you know, were on the campaign trail for a year and a half together. Um, I knew every word of every speech she gave. She knew every word of every speech I gave. We we built a bonding friendship, and I had talked to her in a good while, but for a while there, you know, after I left Columbia, um, ungracefully, um, we kept in touch with one another. Um, and you know, I always knew that her ambition was to not stop at governor of South Carolina. She wanted to, and then had an opportunity but think about Nikki and Tim. I mean, if you're Nikki and Tim and you, you know, the party has a problem with stale, pale and male, 
I mean, neither of those two are stale, pale, and male, right? So, so if the party is interested in diversity and expansion of, um, you know, of who they relate to or who they identify with, I mean, th- those two aren't crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, and they, they've done well. Sure, and they knew they had unique advantages uh, with, with a party who had been um, kind of labeled a certain thing or, or a way. Um, but, but back to the reality, and I think Tim and Philip, excuse me, Jay and Philip, see the writing on the wall. Now you just did a long analysis of that first debate. Never once mentioned DeSantis. Well, I mean, he didn't do anything. I mean, he, he's not. That's who, my point. Well, I mean, that, right. Exactly. I mean, he, you know, DeSantis is not Reb. DeSantis got into the race at 31%. He's figured out a way to get to 15. <laughs> I know. Yikes. And, and, it's, and it's not his fault. I mean, it's just it's, it's the wrong time for Ron DeSantis to run for president. Exactly. I said that the day he announced and because I like him, I still think he's DeSantis a great governor. has done nothing. He's very to suggest he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right, but he's gone from thirty-one to fifteen. I mean, that's just the reality. Trust the polls. Don't trust the polls. Believe in the polls. Don't believe in the polls. There's a consensus of the polls, and and you know, is the ABC News Washington Post poll an outlier? Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But but any Democrat in America knows that Trump's narrowed the gap. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's panic in their world now because they know this cat can win. 91 felonies, four indictments, and he's in the best shape he's ever been in, in his political um, in his political career. But but Ron DeSantis entered the race at 31. People were yearning for an alternative to Donald Trump, and he just failed to meet that test. Why? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Is it something he did? I don't think so. The voters just were not willing to take Trump light. Why would I take Trump light when I can have the real thing? I mean, if I, if I don't want Trump, I'm going for Haley or Hutchinson or Christie. But, but if I don't want Trump and you're saying, here's something almost like Trump, but it, Trump, why would I take that? Why would I take, you know, the, um, the, the original eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven, back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Saturday was Rev and my favorite rock and roll singer's birthday. Bruce oh, Springsteen yeah. turned seventy four. <laughs> Don't include on me Saturday. in Saturday. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So is the E Street Band, uh, <laughs> separately members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I ain't going to see the E Street Band without Bruce there. the The Republicans have somewhat of a conundrum on their hand because the E Street Band is at the debate. But Bruce is not coming. He's going to speak to the United <laughs> Auto Workers Association to use a rock and roll um, correlation. The Fox Business GOP primary debate is set for tomorrow. Um, who makes the cut? We know that, uh, once again, Springsteen will not be there live and in living color. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you? Good morning. So who was there last time that won't be there this time and who was not there last time that may be there this time. Has anything changed, Evan? Well, uh, former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, will not be on the stage tomorrow night. That much I can tell you. Uh, who will be on the stage? We have a lot of the same players. You have North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. You have Governor, former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey, current Governor of Florida Ron DeSantis, former Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, current U.S. Senator from Carol, uh, South Carolina, Tim Scott, uh, and uh, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy. So uh, you have a lot of the same players up there. Uh, you do not, and uh, I think perhaps most um, ominously, you don't have former President Donald Trump, uh, who will 
who will still loom over the stage, even though he's not going to be there. Eben, it seems to me that Haley and Ramaswamy cut through the noise and got people's attention. Whether you agree with what they said or not, we remember some of what they said. Is is it fair to say that this will be this candidates? I mean, this is one of the last opportunities they have to really cut through the noise and distinguish themselves as a viable alternative to Donald Trump. I, I think that the window to do that is, is beginning to close. Yes, we are still a few months away. Well, what is it? Four months away, really, from the Iowa caucuses. So there's still time, of course. But uh, and again, you know, these debates, they play nationally. uh, But that doesn't really matter just yet. What you have to be concerned about is the Iowa caucuses. You have to get the right amount of turnout to do well enough. It looks as if if we're going by what we see today, Donald Trump is going to clean up. But Remember this, the Iowa caucus is not a winner-take-all uh, event. It, the delegates that uh, are won are handed out proportionally based on, on how candidates fare that night after all the votes are counted. Uh, so a, a candidate can be second or third or maybe even fourth place and still have a good night because they'll walk away with some delegates in their pocket, and that's enough to convince donors uh, to say, all right, we'll We'll keep this going for a little while. Let's take you to New Hampshire and see how you do. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's why this the, these types of events are important. Uh, yes, it, it gives the rest of the nation a chance to see these candidates in action. But ultimately, you know, the, the focus for the candidates is still in Iowa, you know, going to the state fairs and the, the county fairs and the 4-H fairs and the, you know, the, 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 the hog contests and everything else they do <laughs> in Iowa. Uh, where politics is played. And that's what they do in Iowa. They want to see these people out at these events uh, that, that are very agriculture-focused. Uh, and so uh, um, so when that, uh, you know, and look, every state kind of has their own thing. In New Hampshire, they want you to come and have breakfast in their in their kitchen. And uh, when they get to you guys in South Carolina, they want you showing up at church bingo. Nope. Uh, and, and so, uh, you, you know, the, but that's how the game is played when you're not Donald Trump. When you're Donald Trump, you kind of just have this presence and you can do whatever you want to do when you're when you're either Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, or even Mike Pence, or you're Vivek Ramaswamy. You you got to go through the motions here uh, and get as much time as you can, so you can you can get the biggest delegate gain you can. You know, um, you you can do you you can be not in first place in Iowa, New Hampshire, and still have a viable presidential candidacy. Hey, Ben, I'm going to ask you to editorialize for a second. I want to be fair-minded about it, understand that you're not a crazy radio show host, but rather a respected journalist. But the ABC Washington Post poll may be an outlier, but it does negate some of the arguments candidates have made about Trump is unelectable. He can't win in a general you know, you, you got to vote for Chris Christie. You got to vote for Nikki Haley. You got to vote for Ron DeSantis because Donald Trump just can't win in November of 2024. I got to believe that candidates now have to kind of revisit that strategy. That's not, I mean, th- th- there's analytics and data now that show that simply is not the case. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, the, the Washington Post poll may truly be an outlier, but even if it is, I mean, that poll was saying, what, there was a 10 percent lead of Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Um, that may or may not be true. Let's let's just say they're 10 points off and it's a dead heat. Well, that's still bad news for Joe Biden. He's an he's an incumbent. Right. 
Um, let's say it's one or two percent that that uh, lead that President uh, former President Trump has. That's that's still very bad news for Joe Biden. So uh, whether or not it's an outlier kind of doesn't matter because it's still showing something that uh, no one in, in that business wants to see on the Democratic side. They don't want to see a popular Republican at all. Certainly don't want to see a popular Donald Trump. Uh, on the Republican side, you have a number of people that don't want to see a, rep- a popular Donald Trump uh, for various reasons. So, uh, there, there's, you know, take the poll with a grain of salt, but certainly, you know, lick that salt off your hand and, and, and take the bite of the lime and take the drink and, and, and go with it. So uh, because it's it, it does reflect probably some real sentiment. Very well explained. Evan, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You got it. That, that's and that's kind of where I mean, you know. Let let's argue. Let let's let's admit. I mean, Rev Zay is, is a bigger Trump supporter than I am. Let's admit that the poll is an outlier. But there's no way you can sit on that stage or stand on that stage tomorrow night if you're Chris Christie or Ron DeSantis or uh, Asa Hutchinson won't be there. Mike Pence and say that you know. I mean, electing Donald Trump is a death wish for the GOP. This guy simply cannot win. I've argued that Trump is the only Republican that can win. I mean, he is the most likely Republican to bring, uh, you know, the working class and some of the um, the weird consolidation that call themselves America Firsters um, to the dance. The one thing I want to go back and say, because, I, you know, once again, I'd love to see some analytics and data. My gut instinct, and that's what has gotten me kind of sort of where I am, good, bad, and different. I mean, I've won some things because I trusted my gut. I've lost some things. Because my instinct said X, and I probably should have done should have done Y, but but it something tells me that the state of the race today does not require a taking down of Joe Biden. Joe Biden has taken himself down. I mean, if you give an incompetent dunce long enough, he'll show you he's an incompetent dunce. So so why why get in the way of that? Why why? Allow him an opportunity to be a sympathetic figure. That's kind of my point. Now, in, in fairness, I don't understand. I'm not a lawyer for DOJ. I'm not legal counsel for the Oversight Commission. Um, can you govern yourselves? In other words, can you pull back a little bit and say, hey, I mean, we believe that Joe Biden is corrupt. We believe he benefited from Hunter Biden's associations. But we believe if we go too aggressively down that road, it may paint Joe Biden as somewhat of a sympathetic figure. So in the name of not pursuing justice, but rather winning elections, let's not do that. And I'm telling you guys, the American public don't like the idea of weaponizing government. They just don't. I mean, Trump's approve-disapprove was 48-49 in the latest ABC News Washington Post poll. When he left, it was 38-60. 38 approved, 60% disapproved. When Donald Trump's approval were 38%, he didn't have 91 felony charges and four indictments. So in the process of getting 91 felony charges and four indictments, 10% more Americans approve of Donald Trump as a candidate for president. That strongly suggests to me that the majority of Americans see this for what it is. Why duplicate it or why risk appearing to be as motivated as the Democrats are in bringing a guy down? I mean, I I think most Americans understand the reason and the nature of the indictments and investigation was to try and bring Donald Trump down. It backfired. It didn't work. The American public saw it for what it is. Why risk that with Hunter and Joe Biden?
Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. You're on. Kid, you know, you've been telling us this week, and other callers have been saying that uh, electric vehicles are bad for the environment. It's mined overseas. They are mighty coal. And also it causes people to lose jobs here in America, less workers. Okay, this is my problem with Trump when I say he's a, he's a little dimmer light. He's not, he's not the brightest light out there. How hard would it be for Trump if I could sit here in front of my gym and make this common statement that the Democrat Party is not for the union? And let me tell you why. A, B, C, D, E, F. Less, the electric vehicles that the Democrats are promoting are bad for American workers. There'll be less workers in this sector, in this sector, in this sector. Not mining coal is bad for these union workers. Not, you know, United Auto Workers. I mean, the list goes on and on. Not drilling for oil is bad for this group of workers. And I'll tell you something that I've noticed here at Mount Pleasant. Really, for about the first, yeah, take COVID out of it. I would say since the beginning of summer, uh, people have been saying that their business is down. Some of as much as 20%. Uh, retail stores, speaking of people that sell clothes, um, furniture, uh, the nail salon uh, next door to stay is very busy. And I'm telling you, we're three miles from Atlantic Ocean. People here got money, but their business is out. You know, uh, right now, our business is a little down from last year. So when all of this smoke clears, you know, I'm more, I'm more worried about that. At the end of the day, I'm getting worried. You start getting more worried about paying your mortgage, paying your bills, and living and living your life. But business is a little bit down, kid. I'm telling you, I got some friends in real estate too. And there's, of course, you know, here where we are, it's hard to even get a house to sell. And if you can find one that somebody wants, because see, nobody's wanting to sell their house. They have a mortgage at three or four percent. They'd have to go buy one unless they can pay cash for it. You see what I'm saying? So they can't do that down here. But the, the economy is a little bit down over here. And I was just wondering if you noticed that in Florence. And why in the hell, I mean, Trump says, there's going to be a better economy than ever before, better economy than ever before. Well, I, I believe he probably will do that. But somebody needs to write something down ABC. Here's why, because I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I haven't heard anybody come up with any solutions. And I just thought, and again, I'll tell you, that going to, I wish we had some smarter, brighter people and more competent people trying to run, trying to run this damn government. Because I just don't see any competency anywhere on either side of the aisle. And haven't, because the more I look back at it, I can't remember the last time I've seen any competency on either side of the aisle. You always hear that adults are in charge now. I don't think the damn adults have been in charge just after the Revolutionary War. I think a bunch of buffoons have been in charge for the past 150, 200 years. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. I mean, I'll give you the craziest theory imaginable. You want me to get out there as far as I, I mean, if I'm a Republican, I mean, here, here's the extreme theory. If I'm a Republican, I would rather the Democrats be in charge the next five years. What? I think the rooster comes home to roost. I, I think agree. whomever is in charge. Say what, Josh? I said I agree. Whomever is in charge when is going to go face bad. some economic headwinds unlike any we've ever seen, unlike 2008.
unlike the 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 late twenties and early. You still 30s. think it's coming? Then? Oh, there's no question. I mean, it, there there's no way around it. I mean, it's coming. I don't have any idea when, where, and how, but it's coming. But the financial bad news tsunami is on its way. I don't have any idea, you know, um, what to do about it. I mean, we've gotten ourselves so out of whack, guys. I mean, we're we're spending a trillion dollars. Ask yourself this. If the government was forced today to live within its means, what repercussions would that have in the overall economy? I mean, we agree that government spending – I mean, it's an inefficient way to allocate capital, but it's still our capital, and it's still allocation of capital. I mean, let, let's say that the government allocating capital gets, you know, 69% bang for its buck, and, and the private sector gets 84%. I mean, I'm just making those numbers up. I don't have any idea uh, what, what the realities are. But, but the, the fact is, it's still capital. I mean, it's still money circulating in an economy, and it's $2 trillion this year. What would the economy look like today? If we were not able to print $2 trillion that we don't have and allow it to circulate within a $25 trillion economy, I mean, what would a steak cost? What would a hamburger cost? What would a gallon of milk cost? I mean, we've so distorted economic reality, and I think you're beginning to see some signs. I mean, I see some early signs. I mean, I read some things because of my business interest about real estate and property and, and development, and, and I find it concerning and alarming. But if you, won't give me, if you want me to give you the extreme political theory, let the Democrats win. I mean, let them be captain of the, of the ship. Remember Hooverville? I mean, it, you know, there, there were generations that would never vote for another Republican because a Republican got elected in the most dire situation and economic circumstances imaginable. I don't know that that's going to happen. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, you want to give me financial advice? I mean, Reggie does that. Um, Reggie gives in financial advice and generalities. If I were an investor, I would short any company that depended on young people buying their product or good because young people are going to be forced to pay back their student debts now. So young people since COVID have been able to buy the latest, greatest Nike tennis shoe or Abercrombie and Fit. I mean, I'm making up name brands. I don't know any of these. I mean, you, it, they're in one year and out the next, and somebody else comes along, you know, with a little cooler brand uh, than the last. But if I were, I mean, young people and young families are not going to have as much money. They've had a reprieve of five, six, $700 a month uh, by having their, um, their student debt suspended. So, so that's an extra five, six, seven hundred dollars a month. I mean, if you're a couple, if you're Josh and a wife and both have student debt, I mean, all of a sudden you were paying, you know, a thousand, twelve hundred dollars a month in student debt payments. COVID hits that they they suspend the payments. Josh and his bride, hypothetically, have another twelve hundred bucks to spend. What do they do with that money? I mean, they they, they buy, buy stuff. So, some of the things they like, and young people like certain things, older people like older things. But yeah, I mean, the extreme political theory, and and I, and I I kind of believe in this. I think whoever is the president, big grammatically, whomever is the president in twenty twenty four, are going to deal with significant economic headwinds from twenty four to twenty eight. What we're just not going to, guys, we can't skate on this. I mean, there's no way we cannot be held accountable and responsible for our fiscal undiscipline. I mean, we just can't. There is no get out of jail free card. This isn't Monopoly, uh, you know, where, where you land in the bad spot and you got this card and you say, hey, I want to use this card now. But there's not that. This is not a board game. 
This is not an academic exercise. This is not a flight simulator. We have been unbelievably fiscally irresponsible. Both political parties have been unbelievably economically and politically irresponsible. And we're going to deal with it at some point in time. And and some of the, um, I don't know, some of the economic news I read and hear and trust leads me to believe that, you know, this will be unlike anything we've ever seen. It's not a housing bubble. It's not a, you know, an auto bubble. It's not a, a student debt bubble. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's all of those. It's a, it's a debt bubble. I mean, we borrowed ourselves into oblivion. And then, you know, e- either modern monetary theory is real or, or we're screwed. I mean, if modern monetary theory is real, I mean, it, what do you call it? I mean, did I say modern mon- monetary reality or did I say modern <laughs> theory. monetary theory? It's a theory that as long as you're in control of the money supply and you're basically borrowing money from yourself because you have the ability to print unlimited amounts of money, it really doesn't matter. I mean, there is no precedent for that. But so far, is modern monetary theory real? No, because a, a gallon of milk costs or a gallon of gas costs yep. you $4 a gallon and, and $40 worth of groceries cost you $75. I mean, those are the implications and consequences of you know, just unlimited government spending and stimulus. Macroeconomic stimulus always, A-L-W-A-Y-S, leads to rampant inflation. And we stimulate it in a way no country in the history of mankind has ever stimulated. And I think, you know, quantitative tightening is happening. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet is getting, you know, more in line with reality. I mean, it's nowhere near reality, but it's getting more in line with, with, with what, you know, some people believe we can sustain or maintain. But, yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's a little bit of me. As much as I'd like to see a Republican in charge, th- there's there's a little bit of me that says, nah, I mean, let, let the Democrat win because they could get punished for a generation for some of the economic hardship that the American people have to endure. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Speaking of government spending, a government shutdown appears to be, yeah, I don't want to say inevitable, but there's a disagreement about whether or not lawmakers should do X, Y, or Z. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good, sir. How are you? We are well. They have until the end of Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, to come up with a deal. Are they close? Uh, it doesn't look like they're close. Now, we could be getting some more hints at what a potential spending deal could look like today. We are expecting uh, the Senate to at some point have their continuing resolution, but obviously it's going to run into some issues with the House. Uh, the House looks like it's trying to pass its individual spending bills, slash what you would call appropriations bills for your listeners. Uh, and that has been something that, that some of the more conservative members have been wanting to happen. And a lot of them are still pretty stern that they will never vote for a continuing resolution, which be, would be a short-term spending bill to fund the government until the end of October. But, Ron, wasn't, I mean, isn't that part of the deal to get McCarthy speaker? I mean, didn't, wasn't that some of the concessions he made that we're going to budget and oh. appropriate as we historically uh, the Constitution requires us to. It, it absolutely was. And, and what was interesting, too, is that you had the Freedom Caucus members. Originally, they had two members who were on appropriations. They now have four. And yet, you know, Speaker McCarthy in many ways can do what I like to call the Pontius pilot method, which is he can wash his hands and say, hey, look, I gave you two additional members on appropriations. We are running the appropriations process right now. And yet, we weren't able to get any of our appropriations bills passed by the time the, the funding deadline was up. 
So we're sitting here, you know, just a few days away from a government shutdown, and we've still only passed one of our 12 appropriations bills. So in many ways, yes, you know, this is what they were supposed to do. But in many ways, Republicans just didn't do it. And Ryan, some of the Freedom Caucus members in the House are hung up on how much more money to give Ukraine. Is that fair? That the, oh, Ukraine funding is definitely one of the things that is holding up uh, a, a substantial amount of members. You know, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene come out and say she will not vote for a CR as long as it has Ukraine funding uh, attached to it. And what was interesting about her vote is that she originally voted yes on that defense appropriations bill to bring it before the floor, right? And then she came back a few days later and voted no on it. So, yes, Ukraine funding is certainly playing a big role in this, but there also are some other issues, too, that are playing in as well. Very well explained. Ryan, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Uh, you too. Have a good one. Thank you. Hey, and I want to say this. Ryan didn't ask us to say this. Rev and I have agreed. Um, Ryan was just beginning uh, his career as a journalist with Fox News mm-hmm. when we got him. And, um, I mean, he's gotten so much better as time has gone by. Oh, I was just thinking So that. aware, so um, willing to explain this position or that uh, position a bit refreshing in that he will elaborate a, a little more extensively than some of the um, some of the reporters normally normally do. The reporters don't want to get in trouble. I mean, when they when they call into radio shows, opinion based radio shows, they know that they're going to get a c- kind of an opinion oriented question, and they want to be real careful. Let's go back real quick. Um, someone texted me a second ago. So, so why are we in? Why is this mess any different than the other messes that that we've been in? And it seems that we're in a mess every time. We we're, we're we're always in a mess because we're spending with money we don't have, and we've allowed that to be normal. A uh, half a half trillion dollars, a trillion dollars, a couple of trillion dollars. When you go back to the the pandemic, and I mean, what 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 happened during the pandemic? And and this this is Economist one hundred and one. What happened to the pandemic is we. We increase liquidity, and we constrain productivity. So out of that came an imbalance. You, you got more liquidity in the economy because of stimulus and um, sending families checks and just printing money and injecting money into the economy, both in personal accounts and, and in business accounts. And we um, and we had pent-up demand. I mean, we close down businesses, so Rev gets an extra X number of dollars because the government says, you know, we just, we're in the business, give away money, and Rev looks like a good guy. Let's give him some money. Let's give Josh some money. Let's give Ken some money. And Rev says, what do I do with this money? I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I mean, the airlines are closed. The, the amusement parks are closed. I can't go to the restaurant. So all of a sudden, I've got this excess money in my account that I normally don't have, well, all of a sudden, the pandemic breaks, and the government says, okay, you can go back to doing what it was you did before. And Rev says, hell yeah, and I can do it with more money than I normally have. Right? Yeah. I mean, Rev's got an extra five grand, six grand, seven grand. I mean, imagine 300 million Americans with an extra five or six grand in their, in their bank account. They weren't allowed to do much of anything for six months. Now, all of a sudden, and that money took a while to circulate. Pin up demand. And, and, you know, an increase in liquidity. Well, that's going to naturally lead to a lot of economic activity. And it kind of worked itself through the system. And now we're at the end of it. Except, except the debt bill is due. I mean, the money they gave Rev didn't come from under the government's mattress. I mean, the government didn't have a savings account set over here somewhere and said, hey, remember that money we set aside 
uh, break glass in case of emergency. But there was none of that. They printed the money out of thin air. 40% of the liquidity in the economy today didn't exist prior to COVID. And, and now we're trying to basically straighten that out the best way we know how with quantitative tightening, with, you know, some of the raising of interest rates. Um, I mean, we're getting very, very, we're, we're aggressively, we're being aggressively creative in how we're dealing with the debt. But, but the reason we ended up here and the reason we're going to have to really make some tough decisions, it would have been different if the government had an extra $6 trillion sitting around somewhere. And they said, you know, Dave Baker's having a tough go of it. He can't go to work. I mean, he can't, you know, he can't live his life as he normally does. So somebody break that window where we kept all that extra cash and let's disperse that money to all these different families and businesses around the country. Not the case. There was no lockbox. I mean, there was no excess money laying around anywhere. They printed the money, created the money out of thin air. Rev says, well, if you're crazy enough to send it to me, I'm crazy enough to put it in my bank account. And then all of a sudden, COVID breaks. You know, Disney opens. The plane, the airlines open back up. People are traveling, living their lives as normal. And they've got more money than they normally do. Where we're at the end of that. And that's why I'm afraid that the next year, two, maybe even three years will consist of a lot of economic hardship, economic despair. There is no precedent. You can't call an economist at Harvard or Yale and say, hey, what happened the last time a country did this? Nobody has ever done anything remotely close to creating that much liquidity and constraining productivity at the same time. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Actually, they did, uh, Ken. It's called the Weimar Republic. They did exactly the same thing we did today, almost verbatim. But our problem, you just got through describing the velocity of money. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but until you put it out and it gains velocity, there's no inflation. But what they're doing is they lie to us about inflation. They say, oh, we're going to keep it at 2%. Well, the old saying is figures don't lie and liars figure. If you look at the budget in 2000, it was $1.78 trillion. We had a $10 trillion economy. You look at the budget today, it's about six point five trillion what they're spending and we have a twenty seven trillion dollar economy. So the economy has gone about hundred and seventy percent in twenty three years, but the debt has gone up five hundred and sixty percent. So you, you you there's no way to keep up with that. And they say they're holding Inflation at two percent. Last time I figured, when you divide out five hundred and sixty percent increase in debt over twenty-three years, that's an average of twenty-four percent a year. And then you add the actual spending; the budget has gone up three hundred and sixty percent. And you divide that out; that's a fifteen percent increase in spending. The problem is. Every time we have a crisis like 2009-10 and then COVID, they take all this extra spending 
and they load it up on the welfare program, and they keep it there. They don't take it out. The, the budget gets a new baseline. So the emergency is now a normalcy. And look at what they're talking about now. Oh, if you shut down the government, food stamps, WICs, this, that, Homeland Security, everything that, that people depend on get hurt. And that's why they do that. They, they set it up to where the people are hurt. Why don't we do to the government what the government did to us? Okay, you shut down. We'll give you a stimulus check, you know, $1,400. You can get by on that until we figure out the budget. They make their laws and don't live by them. It says Congress shall pass the 12 appropriations bill by the 15th of April. When was the last time they did that? That is in law. So that means every one of them are not holding up to their constitutional responsibilities and could be impeached for it. But yet they don't look at it like that. So we just keep rocking along and let them lie to us and think everything's fine. And you're right. It's, it's going to come to a head. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. You know, um, I'll give you a, another example. And I mean, I, 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 I probably get to the conclusions I draw in a weird way, weirder than most. Um, I mean, I believe in human frailty. I believe people intend to do something and they normally don't. I mean, I think the world's full of good intent. I'm no different than anybody else. You know what I pay attention to? When I suspect, when something instinctively or intuitively says there's an economic slowdown heading our way, you know where I look? Gaming, lodging, tourism, and hospitality. Why do I look there? Because I think Josh intends to save money, but he likes having fun. I think Rev mm -hmm. knows it's in his best interest to not do that because I'm a little concerned about what the economic future looks like. I'm no different. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. That's why I can say these things. It's not from a lecturing perspective, but I always go to categories. Um, wh what is the what is the quarter over quarter spending in gaming and hospitality, lodging, um, tourism? Because that's where people enjoy themselves, right? I mean, the gaming industry, the lodging industry, the hospitality industry, the uh, you know the the tourism sector of our economy. I mean, that's you know, and I and I do believe that people sit down with X number of dollars and they decide, is Dave Baker going to Disney or is he going to save that money? Dave knows he needs to save that money, but, but damn it, he's going to Disney. <laughs> is Ken going to buy those football tickets or is he going to save his money? I mean, he lectures every morning about economic hardships headed our way, but you know what he does? He buys those football tickets. <laughs> I, I just think human nature is, is time-tested. Right. I mean, it really and truly is. So when I begin suspecting, when something intuitively says, man, this economy just feels weird to me. I mean, and, and I, you know, I've gone through some economic cycles. Uh, my father ran a business all of his adult life. I mean, he dealt with economic cycles. I'm at the mercy of his decision-making when I was younger, and, and it made me very familiar with the cycles of, of an economy. But I always look at lodging and gaming and hospitality and tourism because that's where the fun is. And when people decide to have fun or not, they normally choose fun. And when they just don't have the money, you see a decline in revenue and a decline in market share, decline in how much uh, money is being spent in that sector. And right now, those are beginning to really struggle. I mean, you're seeing 6% declines in 
in hospitality, um, 9% declines in tourism. Those are big numbers. I mean, those are su- such large parts of our economy. That's kind of a trouble sign to me. I mean, uh, you know, what is, what is year-over-year spending in gaming and lodging and hospitality and tourism? And all four of those sectors are, are in non-dramatic decline, but, but year-to-year decline. So when someone says the economy's fine, I just answer, no, it's not. How do you know? I, I can't explain it. I mean, I try to explain it the best way I know how. I just think human beings are human beings, and human nature is human nature. And if I've got a pocket full of money and I see dark clouds on the horizon, some save. I mean, some are disciplined enough, but the majority of us say, yeah, but I, I sure like having fun. And I'm taking this, and I, I just I see that happening, and the consumer's tapped out. I mean, we're beginning to see a lot of consumer. I mean, look at credit card debt. I mean, it's over a trillion dollars now. Um, the, the re, um, what, what, not, it's, it's crazy to say this, but asking people to pay their student debts again, you know, that's going to take have a an lot effect of, on the oh, economy. that's going to have a tremendous effect on the economy, an unbelievable effect on, on the economy. And once again, if I were shorting stocks, I would short the stocks that young people find attractive and appealing. Cause I think those stocks have been inflated because I think the majority of young people have had that extra thousand dollars that they weren't paying student debt. I mean, they didn't go to Cracker Barrel, right? I mean, that's old people on rocking chairs. I mean, they, they you know they bought some of these. I mean, Nike and I, I'm just throwing playing that checkers out. Checkers on the front yeah, porch. Th- there you go. Yeah, playing checkers on the uh, a lot of m- most most college debt ridden young people aren't sitting on the front porch playing checkers at Cracker Barrel, <laughs> waiting on their name to be called. All right, party of four. Your table is ready. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937, Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock. Our normal guest is here again this morning, Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, with a subspecialty in, no, with a specialty in early American history, subspecialty in Andrew Jackson. Thank is that fair? That. That, that works for me. I'll take okay, that. Okay, yeah. we're, we're not going to put our game face on yet. We'll <laughs> wait until Thursday or Friday or so to put our game face on. I made an argument this morning. That I mean, obviously, Clemson is the Gamecocks' arch rival. I mean, it's yeah. in-state. It's it's uh, it's kind of a uh, small state with two big universities. <laughs> Those universities are kind of equally divided. Um, you know, you're a fan of this team. I'm a fan of the other team. And then you've got the geographic rival and the historical rivalry of Georgia. Yeah, I mean, by. Georgia's been uh, a long-standing rival of the Gamecocks. But aside of Clemson and Georgia, I would argue Tennessee is the one game that I tend to circle on my calendar because there's a lot of flavor to it. You're, you're I mean, right. it's just it's one of the games that since the game got you on the SEC has become an intriguing um, contest, especially when HBC, you know, was the coach at South <laughs> yeah, Carolina because yeah. he always had some um, hey, so, so some provoking hey, things to he say about, how to stick at the Tennessee uh, about Tennessee yeah. w- without question. Yeah. But um, how does Tennessee uh, feel about the Gamecocks? Well, it's a it's a it's it's a stepchild that the Tennessee has the big three, right? Florida, Georgia, Alabama, mm-hmm. and the Tennessee season is pretty much already over. We, we've lost to Florida, and the way we've played, <laughs> it's you, already over, Rev. They <laughs> lost to Florida. You, you, you're not going to beat Alabama. In Alabama. <laughs> Alabama struck, but it's in Tuscaloosa, and you get Georgia in Knoxville, but it's in November. 
You're going to be banged up. Georgia, the depth. You ain't beating Georgia this year either. So, right, heaven help us if we lose to South Carolina <laughs> in Knoxville. Well, and, and that's where I'm going. I, I mean, it does have, it, it's gotten a lot more juice and over it, the years. And it, it's, it's a step along the way. I mean, you know, we're, we're punching sure. up right. at Tennessee, and Tennessee's punching down at South Carolina. But it's been a competitive series. It's a been lot a lot of fun to watch. A lot of close games, yeah. nerve-wracking games, tight moments in the Bolt household since my wife is a Carolina alum <laughs> and some awkward, awkward Sunday mornings over the years. And so, yeah. I get it. But we will not talk about Tennessee in the game. Well, we well, did. Well, well <laughs> good, because I'm, I'm a lot more nervous about it now than I was a, a few a few weeks ago. And Rattler, and they're, they're putting some things together. And this was supposed to be the, the big one for us, that we get the revenge. And Carolina's kind of trending up. Tennessee, we're just kind of muddling along. So, uh, Well, a night yeah. game in Knoxville. Right, that, um, that should help us. If you're a Gamecock fan, wear a hard hat. I'm just <laughs> yeah. encouraging you. If you're a Gamecock fan, go to Knoxville on a Saturday night. Wear um, some orange. That, yeah. yeah, just blend in. You know? it, 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 <laughs> they, they get lathered up. They get rather lathered up at Neyland, and they should. I mean, it's a, it's a um, – it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a SEC conference rivalry, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I think the Gamecocks look at Georgia and Clemson, kind of separate of everybody else. Right. But Tennessee would be that next game yeah. that you kind of measure yourself by. Yeah, I, I think ten years ago, in Tennessee it was just kind of courteous to to Carolina fan. I welcome you. You do remember the SEC, you know? Just, but now you've beaten us, embarrassed us last year. Uh, uh, we're not going to be as forgiving and as well, I, uh, welcoming I, as we normally well, have Well, then been. your quarterback got injured so, you know, last year. Shredded his knee in the process. And, so. and, um, but that's a uh, turnaround yeah. of Sarah play. You guys hurt Lattimore uh, back in the day. Well, let's listen <laughs> to you. That was an accident. <laughs> and with the Tennessee fans felt just as bad when, when Of course that you happened. did. I mean, nobody likes to see a kid get hurt. I mean, yeah. the quarterback from Tennessee, I mean, nobody hit him. It was a weird step a weird, he made. Yeah. And, um, the game was already over by yeah, that point. Too. And you kind of, you know, I heard a lot of Tennessee fans say, Why was our quarterback in the game at anyway? Stage, I mean, that, you yeah. know, and that was one of those weird nights that everything went South oh, Carolina's way. I mean, everything that could have. <laughs> You're uh, bringing back Cox's the pain way. for Dr. I, I mean, Bowl. Yeah, what a minute, no, I'm sitting, the in the, in. I'm sitting yeah. in the stadium going, what, what is this? I mean, it, this is some alien team from it's another we world. we thought, too. It's yeah. like bizarre world. <laughs> okay, l- let's go to this, because you're, you're, you're a specialist in early American history, yeah. but you're a historian. And um, I have argued this morning that if I were being completely and totally objective as a Republican um, you know, former office holder and a Republican operative or activist to some degree, th- there's a little bit of me that says, I don't know that it's smart to want a Republican in the White House uh, in 2024 <laughs> because some of the economic headwinds right, that tough. I think are headed our way. And I used as a reference point, Herbert Hoover yeah. gets elected in 28. In a landslide. In a, in a landslide. Big, yeah. um, I don't want to say was oblivious to the economic situation of Americans, average Americans, but he was a wealthy man, Very and, and he appeared to be a little bit nonchalant That's to the nice issues way. of the average American worker. Yeah. Along comes FDR in 32, and Republicans played or paid a significant price because yeah. FDR stayed in the White House four years, yeah. four terms, I'm sorry, four terms, and it was a long time before right. Republicans were elected uh, back in Wasn't charge until 52 from 32 to 52 a democrat occupied 20 years the white house mm-hmm. so am i on to something that hoover's republican presidency led to a long run of democrats in the white house yeah. fdr uh, largely but but now that truman won on his own in 48 and won on his own yep so why did hoover miss the boat i mean what what obviously it, the depression is not his fault no, he's, I mean, it's he's, hard to blame he's in the wrong spot at the wrong time. 
And the, the Hoover and the Republican, the 1920s had been a banner year. They won in 2024, 28. By the time you get to 1928, the Republican Party is making gains in the South. And this was still the era of the solid South. It looked like the Democratic Party was on the path to extinction. And the economy was booming. Everything was going well for the Republicans. The stock market crashes. The Depression starts at the end of 1929 and the start of 1930. Hoover had this, dare we say, Jeffersonian mindset of laissez-faire. The government should stay out of the economy. The invisible hand, it'll all sort itself out. And this simply, this was simply too big. Uh, the people were calling out for government intervention. Hoover and the rest of the Republicans just couldn't bring themselves to do this. By the time they finally abandoned this in 1932 and started to pass some legislation, uh, particularly some tax increases, it was too little too late. By the time any of this was felt, it was after the election. And the voters, right, blamed Herbert Hoover in the lackadaisical response. FDR comes to power. And the rest, as you know, is history. They're off to the races. And they blame the Republicans, not oh, just Hoover. Yeah. How <laughs> much was Hoover, how much, uh, the optic of him being a wealthy guy he was, and, yeah. and, and appeared to be a bit disconnected from the realities of what average Americans were dealing with, how much of that was into play? Oh, for sure. And there was lots of pictures, newsreel footage of during the Depression, Hoover's going out fishing. He's out there fly fishing, but he's out there fly fishing in a full suit. And he's got the hip waders on, and usually I've got you know, just some ratty Columbia's on. Just I'm not really caring about what I look like, but he's like he's like he just went to church, and now he's out there throwing a line in the water. And so while the people are in bread lines, trying in to cardboard fare, boxes, ex, in, right in shanty towns, Hoovervilles, there's the president of the United States dressed to the nines, looking very very fancy. Again, just didn't seem. There's the old line if you remember in 1992, right when George H. W. Bush didn't know what a scanner was. In the grocery store. And it's like, well, how are you so, these have been around for so long. How have you, you're not in touch with everyday America. And you could say the same thing was happening with Herbert Hoover at that time. He was just completely oblivious to the plight of what the American people were going through. We had 25% unemployment rate uh, by the time I got to election in 32. And it's fair to say <clears throat> that FDR felt their pain or convinced Americans he felt their pain. I mean, FDR was probably even more wealthier yeah, uh, than I mean, Herbert a, a Hoover. richer guy than Hoover. Exactly. I mean, but the, the Wall Street guys called him a traitor to his class because once FDR comes from his entire political career had been helping out uh, the little guy. There's the Jeffersonian populism, the Jacksonian populism strength. And a lot of people say, well, how do you go from kind of like Thomas Jefferson to FDR? Well, Andrew Jackson is that kind of that link, again, that populist link, kind of caring for the little guy, the forgotten guy. And FDR, again, he's a, a smart, a brilliant politician who kind of tapped into those individuals, the forgotten man, much like we could almost say a Donald Trump in contemporary American politics right now. I'm not sure how Trump would feel being compared uh, to FDR, but hey, two, two good New Yorkers, nothing but, wrong with that. But you would agree that Trump sees something that Hoover didn't. Sure, Trump, I, yeah, yeah. Trump perceives something that Hoover didn't. In other words, when Trump shows up to a football stadium in Montgomery, Alabama, he senses how the, yes. the, the economic frustration <laughs> That the forgotten right. man, to use and, your word. Trump, Trump it was kind of feel comfortable, right, even though, again, he's this Wall Street billionaire um, from Manhattan. Right, he can connect and resonate. Herbert Hoover was, forgive the a fish out of water, just really didn't feel comfortable, didn't know how to interact, couldn't press the flesh, if you will. You know, just wasn't happy, kind of kissing babies, giving speeches like that. Again, he's just very, very aloof, a thinking man's politician. So has any Republican since Hoover, 
sided with workers in a labor strike. I mean, it looks yeah. like Trump is siding with the workers. He's going to address the UAW um, tomorrow. I think Biden's um, yeah. Biden's Biden is marching. I mean, I don't know that an American president is ever a, picketed with yes. uh, union workers. But but it is. I mean, it, it, there's an all-out battle for that vote. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and that was that's why Trump won in 2016. But you're from Buffalo. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> well, I mean, no, no. I mean, that 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 would be the Rust Belt. In all Absolutely, honesty, I mean, yes. it's in New York, but it is part of the Rust Belt. So, so union issues still matter in Buffalo. Well, I mean, and that's New where York, I'm headed. Yeah. You don't live there, but you're still well aware of how they sense and feel there. Yeah. How do you, how do you think Trump relates to the working class in Buffalo, New York? I think a lot of them certainly like him. I mean, he this was a guy who said, "Hey, these trade deals." Have hurt you. Uh, the, the the guys in corporate America have stuck it to you over the years. Again, you're forgotten about. You're struggling to make ends meet. And again, for for many years, if you were an industrial worker, in the fact, sure, you weren't going to be taking trips to Europe. But again, there was enough left over. You could send your kids to college. There'd be a nice, comfortable retirement. At least again, you weren't going on all these worldwide trips. But there's enough for a family vacation. Uh, you're going to leave your kids a little something, a nest egg at the end. And so now where we are, again, you're you're busting your rent 40, 50 hours a week, and you're barely making ends meet. And you're just one uh, broken car, one bad appliance down from being in over your head and having lots of problems. And again, Trump kind of tapped in this. for generations ever since FDR. The Democratic Party had assumed and taken for granted the working man's vote, really hadn't done anything, negotiated some, some bad trade deals, got in bed with the environmentalists who imposed these regulations which killed off, lost lots of jobs, sent them overseas. And the Democrats just kind of took them for granted. Every November, they'll come out and vote. And then Trump said, hey, what do you got to lose? And so, right, and this is why he was able to win. This is why he won Pennsylvania uh, and those other Rust Belt states in 2016. And it took the only guy, Biden was the only guy who could probably, who was the antidote, who had ties to that working group. And that's why the Democrats had to kind of resurrect him. Uh, and pull him out of the witness protection program in 2020. Okay, I've always <clears> wanted to ask someone from Buffalo or that part of the world this question, um, and I feel comfortable enough with you to, to ask this. Sure. So in the South, there is a resentment. I mean, that's the word I'm using, a resentment that we have about foreign workers taking our jobs. Yeah. But in all honesty, the majority of those jobs came from the, the Rust Belt. Yeah, coming down. The, the Northeast. Right. Uh, the labor unions made the cost of doing business really expensive. The right to work states down south, Keep it. Uh, corporate America saw a higher ability or more of an ability to be profitable by coming down south. So, so as much as Southerners resent, because it's kind of a it's a it's a two stage process. The jobs left the north right. because of some of the labor unions. They right. came to right to work states in the south. The right to work states in the south became expensive or more expensive than Malaysia, China, India, some of these um, underdeveloped nations. I know how much Southern workers resent some of the factories and jobs that went to foreign lands. That's probably the anti-globalist sentiment yeah. of Southerners in America Trump today. Sure. Do the Rust Belt workers have a sense of resentment to, to Southerners believing that you're, you're, you're the folks who took my jobs? Yeah, there's probably a lot of this. The, the There's no support for unions down south. I'm sure there's some animus. And a lot of it, it's there's a there's a bill in 1946 is called the Taft-Hartley Act, and this sort of repealed, rolled back a lot of the gains that organized labor had made. And again, the timing is very important. It's right after World War II. The one part of the country where you don't have heavy industry just yet is the Deep South. And so now, again, as the factories are starting to look to go to the South, 
you can't you can't have a union down there. And so again, this is why there's no really no uh, there was never why the unions just didn't take root in the South uh, in this part of the country. Whereas they're so entrenched. I mean, up north, up in Buffalo, I would take my grandfather's would have a, a doctor's appointment, and if the nurses were on strike, they would say, "Well, cancel the appointment. I'm not going to cross a picket line." You know, even though it's it's something, it's I'm not a part of this union, and so it's 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 just ingrained. It's a part of your your everyday life, and people are very very passionate. Uh, not just the the we've got two auto plants in Buffalo, the old steel mill, the teachers unions uh, were very powerful and potent, and some would say they've done more harm than good. But but old habits die hard. Did you see up close and personal <laughs> the deindustrialization of the Rust Belt? It had it had kind of started before I was born, but there is a huge, huge stretch along Route 5 uh, in Buffalo, several miles where Bethlehem Steel was. And Bethlehem Steel was one of the biggest producers of steel in the country. And there's just several miles of just dilapidated, old, rusted buildings right on prime real estate on Lake Erie that have just been dilapidating for over, for now 40 years, for pretty much my my entire life. It kind of, they shuttered the plant in 1982. Uh, it had been dying a slow, painful death for several years before then. But my grandfather worked there, uh, was a union steward, uh, did, did all right for himself. But again, right, it was just, you, you'd take him, you'd drive him along there, and he just, he, he couldn't look. He had to kind of look the other way. That just, so much power, so much glory, such an important part of the community uh, had just kind of floundered. It was terrible. Interesting. Someone on the phone. Let's go there. Yeah, we have Jim in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Jim. You are on the air. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, just straight from the horse's mouth. Um, I had a good friend. He's working for Caterpillar. And directly from the bosses at Caterpillar, if we so much as hear the word union, we'll close this factory down and move. And this is in Sumter, South Carolina. So that's direct evidence of what you're talking about um, here because they didn't want collective bargaining driving up the cost. And uh, they specifically told the workers there, look, we're paying you a good good salary, like it or lump it, but if you say the word union, we'll move. Thank you. Appreciate that, Jim. Um, I mean, I got to know, uh, that's overstating. I, I met Mr. Roger Milliken several times when I was lieutenant governor and running for lieutenant governor, and he told me several stories of his dealings with unions. And they were, I mean, he operated under his terms. And, um, and I mean, I think he closed a plant down one time when they voted the union uh, in. I mean, as someone who has experience understanding the association, a community, and a and a labor force has with with unions, net good, net bad, fair to criticize and fair to uh, be supportive of. The, the, the accomplished many goals. <clears throat> Going back a hundred years, right? You had very very dangerous conditions in factories, and so this is pre OSHA. Used to have not. A, a, exactly. I mean, is that fair to say? And so, right, and, so, and certainly again, you know, my, my grandfather said by by the end with Bethlehem Steel, they were getting several months of paid vacation that's how strong and he said did we need it no but of course i'm going to i'm going to take it and so certainly they've in some instances they've they've overplayed their hand but again right now when we're seeing that the the workers are certainly not getting at least what they consider to be a a fair shake and we have corporate corporate profits and again not not sound like a good good republican right now but again when you have corporate profits at record highs then certainly there has to be some sort of a 
a, a redesigning of the model, if you will. But Dr. Bolt, <laughs> isn't that where a lot of Republicans who call themselves America Firsters find themselves in this very complicated right, place of historically we've been for the free market, right? And no. you know, and you know, the supply and demand of labor is a big part of that free market. But now all of a sudden we find ourselves on the side of the worker who is opposed who to the corporate, <laughs> yeah. you know, the greedy corporatist who's trying to it's squeeze every threat. It's yeah. a very uh, tough, and, and there, I don't think there's an ironclad answer. I mean, I no, don't think not, there's no. a, you know, a standard answer we can give to every, every situation is unique. Sure. Every relationship labor has with ownership is unique and I think should be treated and, accordingly. Sure. I and mean, what's going on with you? It looks like there's some of the reports are that they're close. And it's, it's, it's going to be a compromise. Neither side is going to get uh, entirely all of what they want. Hey, and Biden's going up there. I'm sure he's hoping that right after or while he's there, they reach an agreement. Heaven help him if he leaves and then they announce the agreement while Trump is down there. So there's a lot of fascinating politics involved with this. But again, it's we, we'd kind of forgotten about organized labor and you know, strikes of very, very small, uh, nothing nationwide in a long, long while. And it's like we're back in the 1930s yeah. right now with, with UAW. So, And it seems that both parties are supportive of the workers, battling for who's first or who's most supportive of um, not organized labor, but the worker in general. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. I've done everything I can to pick a fight. He's such a, a good gentleman. We talked about Tennessee Gamecock football. We talked about Buffalo and the Southerners stealing all the jobs. So, yeah, I mean, anything I can do to try to get his dander up and get him to take a swing at me. I, I, I pick my battles. Okay, you do. And you're very wise about, about that. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. You are on the air. Good morning, Dr. Bolt. Good morning, sir. Hey, um, I got a question. Sure. If a white supremacist didn't kill eight people, or eight or nine people in Charleston, would Nicky Hinn would put that, bring that flag down? Well, that was perhaps better, better late than never. But certainly, it's a, it's, it was a controversial issue. Uh, it's certainly for a lot of individuals. It's a, it's a symbol of hate. And again, certainly, it's probably it's, it's, it's time had come. And certainly, it should be just, uh, dis, certainly, it can be displayed in a museum. Certainly, a. Uh, uh, to remind people of their history. Uh, and one of the important points, though, you know, at the end of the American Civil War, when Confederate armies had to surrender, they had to stack their arms and they had to surrender their battle flags uh, to the victorious Union troops. And so these were not, these were not going to be allowed to be displayed. Uh, they were going to be trophies uh, for the people in the North. So it's, it's still a, a complicated issue. Uh, and certainly, I'm sure, as you know, the city of Buffalo, New York, has, has dealt with this issue uh, of racial violence as well. Last summer, several... Uh, numerous African-Americans were, of course, targeted uh, in the top shopping center. So, again, it is a nationwide problem, and I certainly can feel your pain. Hey, I got one more question for you, man. Sure thing. Okay, Florida. They banned books, right? The Sanders in the legislature, surely, and that's their, yes, they've been doing that. They banned a book about Rosa Parks. Is the American French Party trying to take us back to fifties or what? Again, it's a it's 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 a bad look, I would say. Um, and I, th I think certainly the Democrats are certainly using these issues to their advantage. Uh, it's a, it's it's a bad optic, and so again, you gotta. I would tread more cautiously on this issue, and there's there's ways you can kind of do it. You'd be a little more subtle, if you will. But certainly, right, this is a, a an, an unfortunate trend. 
Uh, we've seen it before in American history. It doesn't end that well. Or didn't seen it before in world history. And again, it's just not a good look. Do we get in trouble? Thank you, Williams. Appreciate the call. Yes, do, do we get in trouble when we try to explain the Confederacy in a soundbite? <laughs> again, it meant different things to different people. Uh, lots of individuals were very, very supportive of the Confederacy. Lots of individuals wound up getting drafted, conscripted. Uh, it, I mean, you talk about a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. If you owned 20 more slaves, you were exempt. You didn't have to serve. Uh, you could buy a substitute if you had some money. And so, right, lots of young men kind of early on rushed, volunteered, wanted to, to fight. They thought the war was going to be over in a couple of months. Go out there, shoot some Yankees before it's all over. And then afterwards, it's like, uh-oh, uh, maybe I don't want a part of this, especially by the end. Desertion rates were were very, very high. And in order to serve in, in either army for the North or South, the main requirement was you needed two teeth that connected. So you could rip open the powder. So lots of guys who didn't want to serve said, hey, Dad, give me the pliers. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of dental work. Uh, so you could avoid having to serve in the armies. <laughs> what percentage, this is unfair to ask you this on the spot, but you would know if anybody, was, was it a high percentage or not of Confederate soldiers who owned slaves? No, very, very small uh, percentage. Again, as you said, a rich man's war, poor man's fight. Again, lots of these individuals, if you ask the average Confederate, why are you fighting this war? He said, well, because you, you're down here. I mean, that's why they were fighting this war. They didn't, they didn't have slaves. They didn't really have a dog in that fight. It's a libertarian uh, mindset, just live and let live. You know, this is what we wanted to do. We wanted to have a, an independent country of our own. You guys aren't letting us have this. It's the same precedent as the American Revolution. So that's why we're going to do this. And that's but, why many of them took up muskets and put their lives on the line. But Dr. Bolt, isn't that part of your calling? I mean, this is a weird word no, to I use, agree. but but I mean, a part of your calling as a historian has to be to enlighten people about the realities of history, the accuracy of history. Yeah. I, I'm not defending the Confederacy. But I think the, the Confederacy at least deserves to be explained in oh, something sure, yeah. other than a, a media soundbite. No, no, it's, it's, hey, I'm lucky. I get to teach the American Revolution, and I get to teach the Civil War at Francis Man. Those are my two favorite courses. I'm doing the Civil War right now. It's just a, a lot of fun. Uh, I focus on the guns and the trumpets. I mean, I know a, a lot of the tactics for the Confederacy were sound. There were some brilliant maneuvers by Robert E. Lee Stonewall Jackson, just confounded. Uh, the, the tactics of Lee defied uh, military logic, dividing his troops in front of a superior force. Uh, just incredible tactics that uh, Lee's Chancellorsville campaign is still studied at West Point uh, to this day. So there's still important, valuable lessons. Uh, guerrilla warfare was employed by both sides during the American Civil War. Uh, there's lots of involvement of the home front, how you keep. Uh, why did the Confederacy fail? Well, it was just a lack of nationalism, poor management by Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And others have said, well, why did the North win in the South? Lost? Well, the North had Lincoln. So, again, there's lots and lots of lessons even today, whether we, no matter how we feel about the Confederacy, right, it is an important part of American history. The Civil War is the crossroads. I mean, we are a fundamentally different nation coming out of that conflict. It solved a lot of problems, and maybe it led to some problems as well. But, again, it's the crossroads. We've got to come to grips with the Civil War. And as long as we are curious about history and, and try to understand sure. history, uh, it makes us a better nation. So, so many acts of heroism, both sides. One of the greatest acts is from uh, a Confederate right down the road, a guy by the name of Joseph Kershaw, uh, who at the Battle of Fredericksburg, when the Union troops were pinned down in front of the wall, uh, crying out for water, Kershaw went over, uh, or just Joseph Kirkland, excuse me, went over the wall uh, and gave wounded, dying Union soldiers water. And when the soldiers on both sides figured out what he was doing, they held their fire. He became known as the Angel of Marie's Heights. There's a beautiful monument uh, to the guy there.
And very few people know that. Let's go to the phone. Rajan in Darlington. Hey, Rajan, you're on the air. Good morning, guys. Hey, hey, listen, one of the things that, that's just most disturbing to me when when you have oh when when Williams comes on and I mean they, they have a selective or a laser focus on history that only focuses on uh, a certain part of slavery. And and I've, I've said this on the, on the show before, and I've said it 10 years ago. In the slave trade, nobody, black or white, their hands are not clean. Sure. So you, you want to you wanna lay blame for the Civil War? Then we can lay blame on both sides because it was not the white man that went into the interior of Africa and enslaved or took the black man out. It was a black man that went into the interior, took slaves, took territory, and brought the the, the black man to the to to the coast to be shipped here to the United States and the Caribbean and South America. So. If we're going to talk about you know slavery, we need to go back to the original, to the original uh, um, catalyst that started this whole damn thing, and that was just greed. It was the greed of the African kings and 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 the, the greed of the white man that wanted to bring you know some profits to his pocket by using slaves, by selling slaves, just like you know you had the Spanish that were looking for gold back in back in you know years before. The, the only difference was instead of using a metal, they were using human. You know, they were using humans. So I'm like, this this is ridiculous. Read your damn history. No. Read your history. I mean, I mean, I've had I've had some folks. I had a, there's a joke. There's a there's a running joke. If you want to hide something from the black man, put it inside of a book. They'll never find it. Thank you, Rujan. Yeah, Appreciate yeah. that. Well, I mean, and Doctor Bolt, I mean, slavery at that time in world history was fairly common. Oh, for sure. But the transatlantic slave trade was not the only right. slave and, trade in the world. And the story of, I, I always tell the story, slavery in America, it's 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 a national institution. In the colonial period, almost all of the slave ships, the transatlantic slave ships, were outfitted and captained by Northerners uh, in New England. Once in the 19th century before the Civil War, the cotton is grown in the South. Where are all the textile mills? They're all up in the Northeast in New England. So the, certainly the North, sadly, has its fingers. They're they're complicit. They've got dirt on their hands as well. It's a nationwide problem. But but we've done the best I know how to reconcile and say grace over so. one of the one of the darkest stains in American history. I mean, there's no doubt about it that America cannot escape that reality. Oh, it, it's there. But but, but, I, but I do believe we have more seriously considered our sin than than most nations around the world have. I would think so. We've done and certainly there's 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 work to be done. But certainly a lot of good steps, efforts have been taken on behalf of the government. But again, there's still, and again, we were talking about this FDR's mantra when he was president, half a loaf is better than nothing at all. And so, right, a lot of this are certainly piecemeal measures, and certainly maybe more could be done. But, hey, in the art of American politics, we're seeing this right now. Uh, you got to hedge your bets. you got to make some compromises, and sometimes they're dirty compromises. You there's make. somebody on the phone. Let's go there. Henry in Bethune. Good morning. You are on with Dr. Bolt. Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Henry. Uh, the great Dennis Miller once uh, used a metaphor for two candidates. first candidate was a chess player. He examined the board every move for his and his opponent. The second candidate is a chess player. He doesn't have to do anything. He just jumps them. Now, 
Do you think in 2024 this could be applied, or is that too facetious? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's it's still we're we're getting we're winding up or it's it's, it's kind of starting. Uh, it looks like President Trump. A lot of the polls are he, he he's kind of surging right now. And I think if if I were Biden, if if I were only one or two points ahead, I'd be very very nervous because a lot of late vote are probably going to b- break for President Trump. Did you ever buy into the narrative that Trump is unelectable? I did not. I mean, I always no. knew, and I guess it's because of where I come from and the people right. that I the people very much see, relate to. Yes. Yeah, but the people you know so when. Know. When, when, when I watch Meet the Press, and you've got a senior editor from the New York Times, and the, um, the, uh, the, the managing editor of TheHill.com, and a staffer at Politico, and they say, I don't know anybody that's voting for Trump. I'm going like, of course you don't. And they <laughs> yeah. don't hang around Surprise. at cocktail parties must be nice in Washington. Isolated yeah. like that, yes. But, but in all honesty, I mean, in the, in the streets of Buffalo, on the farms in Pamplico, there's still an enormous affection right. they have for Donald Trump. He's their guy. I mean, they, and they're not going to abandon him. And we've, we've said it before, right? These indictments, these attacks just only increase their resolve. I mean, this is, and we, we've said this, we're, this is probably ground zero for Trump's support in the entire state of South Carolina. And so we, we see this. And so, you, and when we see this, there's no way, he, what, what are you talking about? Come spend five minutes down here. Oh, you're going to meet a lot of people who would be willing to, to take a bullet. For the guy. Well, and, and I and I used this this morning, Dr. Bolt. I mean, his approve was 38 when he left office. His approve today is 48. <laughs> so his approve is up 10%. You know what the only thing changed? 91 felonies <laughs> and four indictments. So who who whose approval improved by 10% after they've been charged with 91 right. felonies and four indictments? And when- when, when you run, when you're, a president is running for re-election, the simple question is, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And most Americans say, no, I'm not. And it's even tougher, right, when the guy running against you was the guy who was in <laughs> office when things were better. So, uh, yeah, if I were Biden, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be scared. I'd, I, you got to shake up the narrative. You got to change things around. You, you almost wonder, with curiosity, I do, if those who made the statements that Trump is unelectable really believed it. Yeah. It's almost like you try to convince yourself of certain things <laughs> hope and at wish. certain times. Yeah. I mean, the Gamecocks are going to kneel and it upset Tennessee. Do you I hope really and wish? Yeah, well, do I really <laughs> I believe I that? Yeah. Well, I mean, do I really believe that? <laughs> well, we thought that there was no way last year. Yeah. Look at what happened then. But that was in Columbia. Yeah. And that was one of the weird moments of well, all. Like a three-touchdown favorite and was yeah. over at halftime. I think they're favored by 11 or 12 yeah. at this time. The home team Still. should be favored right. by 11 or 12. And Tennessee's better team than South Carolina. That much better? I don't know. Right, That's why paper. we play uh, the game. Appreciate your time. Good luck there, Dr. Will Bolt. Thanks, guys. Yeah. History Chair, Francis Marion University. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. So you're scared and you're thinking that maybe we 
Mm-hmm. So I feel like we've done our our, our duty there. Right, Rev? I mean, you would agree. We did more than our Rev enjoyed a debate at our tailgate Saturday with um, my two boys, and one of your kids was involved in it. Uh, The the debate we have over and over again about who the greatest rock and roll bands were, who the greatest songwriters are, um, and it was kind of an interesting, one of my kids caught Rev off guard when he said he thought Led Zeppelin was overrated. Yeah, We all agreed that Tom Petty was underrated. That's true. I mean, everybody in the conversation agreed that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were dramatically underrated. We had a um, we had a varying uh, opinion of Bruce Springsteen of the East we Street had some split decisions. Yeah, there. We had some split decisions on Springsteen, split decisions on Zeppelin. Now we're not talking about run of the mill bands. I mean, th- we we're talking about the Eagles and and you know Dylan and the uh, Beatles and the Stones and so so we we didn't. I mean, I don't remember. A flock of seagulls being brought up in the conversation. Do you, Rev? Uh, they did not. Okay. Uh, they did not. We were having a conversation about what we consider elite rock and roll performers. It was interesting that my oldest son had a different opinion of Led Zeppelin than I imagined he would. Mm-hmm. He thought they were. They over, thought they were overrated. Overrated. Yeah. And, um, and I said, are you crazy? Rev, Rev took a swing at him. And I had to, you know, <laughs> as I normally do, I restored order and got mm-hmm. everybody back mm-hmm. in, in good standing. But uh, it's a, kind of an interesting. And those debates are fun because there is no answer. Right. I mean, there is no Just right nor wrong answer. Opinion. You better believe it. And, uh, I mean, obviously, you can't say, hey, don't you think a flock of seagulls should be on Mount Rushmore <laughs> along with the Beatles and Stones and who? No, they shouldn't be. But, um, but we were debating. It's a fun tailgating subject. No sure, question sure. about it, especially when you've. Had some food and some beverage. It's a real fun um, tailgating conversation. But you made us play Bruce today because... His birthday was Saturday, right. 74 years old, and I'm worried. I mean, I'm legitimately concerned. Buffett is seven, was 76, uh, canceled a few events or canceled a few dates, and, and next thing you know, uh, you know, uh, and Springsteen 74, what has happened recently, he's canceled a few dates, missed a few performances, and really hasn't said why, just said, you know, health issues. Bruce isn't feeling well, yeah. having some health issues. And I mean, in your mid-70s, uh, it, I would imagine it's easier to be a rock and roll star when you're 30 than it is to be when you're sure. when you're 74. Um, w- one, of the, one of the advantages Buffett and Springsteen have, what do you do with them if they say, I'm not playing tonight? <laughs> I mean, if you're 30 years old and just signed a record deal, you're basically property of the record company. Yep. Get out there and, and play. Yeah, get out there and play and play what we tell you to play. When you get to be Buffett or Springsteen, you probably say, I don't feel like playing tonight. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, but they feel the responsibility <laughs> well, sure to do. everybody that's, working. That's and, how they've attained yeah. the success and following and notoriety that they have. Let's go to the phone. So well, happy I, birthday I, to the boss. I did want to touch, go back and touch on one thing you brought up uh, earlier in the show when you said, because this is pretty monumental, you said that you know part of you thinks that a Democrat should win next time. Because you are predicting that things may get bad enough in our economy and such where it would be better to have a Democrat in charge so they can get well, I mean, the blame. I use Hoover as an example. I mean, Hoover was blamed for a lot of things he's not responsible for. FDR had compassion and, and, and seemed to care. I mean, you know, both were rich guys. I mean, Hoover was wealthy. FDR was more wealthy than Hoover. But, you know, um, Hoover was shown fly fishing looking like little little Lord Fauntleroy, and he appeared to be dis- disconnected or detached. And I do believe, and I think Josh believes this, I think the country has some significant economic headwinds 
that will cause pain and anguish if we agree to address. And I'm not blaming Democrats for that. Please understand. And it almost sounds like you're betting against America when well, you I mean, say stuff like I, that, I right? I don't know. No, I'm just betting against borrowing a trillion dollars a year we don't have. Yeah, I mean, I get it. And, and I want to be emphatically clear. I am a Republican. I vote for Republicans. Republicans are as to blame for the debt as Democrats are. The, the Republicans, in all honesty, should be a little more ashamed of themselves because the Democrats never send mailers saying, give me a chance to go to Washington and I'll constrain spending. I'll show fiscal restraint and discipline. And we'll get our, our, our books back in order. Um, the Democrats say, send me to Washington and I'll create a government program to do X, Y, or Z. So, so there's some, I don't know, break or benefit of the doubt that I think Democrats deserve when it comes to debt, but the Republicans have not shown a willingness to address the debt. And I believe we made monumental mistakes during COVID that added to the debt. I believe part of working out this uh, this post-pandemic stimulus is going to be economic hardship. And I think we're headed there. And I think we need to send a clear message to the GOP that Kevin McCarthy and these these types, they're not what we want. And I think the best way to do that is to let them lose, is to... You know, because I'm a I'm a conservative and not a Republican. I just happen to vote Republican because I think they represent my views more. But I think at this point in time, the way things are going, it might be better in the long term to not vote for anyone. Maybe now the the only caveat is that Trump, if he won, can't run again, so he can be whatever he chooses to be. But do you really believe Donald Trump is going to address the debt? I mean, I think Donald Trump is going to Washington to settle scores. I mean, I think it's, you know, a vindication tour 101. Um, I'm not saying that's good or bad for the country, and, and I get it. I mean, if he believes that he's been singled out and, and treated differently than other people who have, you know, lived his life or, or walked in his shoes, I mean, I understand that. That's a human complex. He's no different than anybody else. Um, but do you really believe that if Trump gets the keys to the liquor cabinet, he's going to cut spending by 20%? He's going to do rein in entitlement spending. He's going to reform Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. I, you know, I've not heard him say anything remotely close to that or leads me to believe that he has any interest in that. The one thing he may do is send China a bill for whatever outstanding debt we owe them. That would be kind of interesting mm-hmm. and good for talk radio. Yeah. Let's, let's go to the vault. I, I'm not betting against America. I am betting against borrowing a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. And, and once again, I want to say, I'm not blaming the Democrats for that. The Republicans are equally as guilty of not restraining spending or addressing some of these fundamentals that have to be addressed if we're going to get our financial house back in order. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Uh, We do agree on another thing. Tom Petty was great. Mm -hmm. Underrated. Great and underrated. I miss Tom Petty. I really do. Yeah, I, I, I got to see him on his last tour. Um, and it was, uh, it was sad when he went. Um, so <laughs> you, you said a couple things. I got there. a feeling we don't agree anymore after, after that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's it. That's <laughs> the one. I, I, I do agree with you that Donald Trump is not a guy who's going to rise to an occasion, uh, to, to fix, uh, any monumental problems that the United States have fiscally. Um, you know, the only thing he'd rise to occasion of is maybe, uh, I don't know, a porn star or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the thing about the, the Republicans versus uh, Democrats, 
They both spend money. They both spend money equally. Why we have a runaway national debt that tends to occur under Republican presidents is they'll cut taxes while they're spending money we don't have. That Trump tax cut that he passed, $2 trillion to that debt. He continues to do that. But, I mean, revenue went up. Revenue went up after we cut taxes. Sure. This, this, this Reagan theory has never proven out. But, but did, did, did tax receipts go up after Trump cut taxes or not? You see a bump. You absolutely see a bump. It happened in the 80s. We so what do you attribute that to? But I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be argumentative. Well, I'm, I'm honestly not. No, no, so what is yeah. your theory there? If, you're, if, if tax receipts increased... After a tax cut, explain that from your perspective, Jeff. Okay, and, and, and I will. The, when people and corporations receive a tax cut, they know they better show, hey, look, you cut our taxes and we're spending money. In the long term, what do they end up doing with it? They end up doing stock buybacks. This may surprise you, but I wouldn't have a problem with limiting the number of stocks a company can buy of its own share? Uh, there should be. A it's a, it's a right? market manipulator is what it is. It is. They, they actually drive their companies through cycles to where they inflate the bottom line at the expense of everything. The companies look profitable. The numbers start coming back in. Company doesn't look as profitable. Stock price goes down. Guess what they do with all the profits? They don't reinvest them. They just buy back their stock. That's sure they do. Right. Sure they do. And I and I, I, mean, I this, and this, I'm fundamentally opposed to that. Right. So so as far as uh, Reaganomics, and that's what it is. I mean, you know that that tax cut that Donald Trump passed, uh, largest one in history, as he likes to say, um, led to in four years Donald Trump. The national debt, right? Can, can I stop you there for one second, Rev? Sure. When, when when the Trump tax cuts were enacted, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I know we can't archive that far back. What was my response? You thought they were too heavily weighted toward corporations, okay, and not enough to individuals, yeah, I, okay? You did we, say we that. We don't disagree. Yep, I, I'm not saying you didn't. I, I'm just, you, but your listeners need to hear it again because if he got back and he's unrestrained, it would get worse. And by the way, it led to some pretty good economic times before the pandemic. Between the tax cut and 2020, country was doing pretty good but, economically, but, but, but right? But a lot of the economic... Yes, but, 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 but again... But, but let's be serious back. here for a second. A lot, a, a lot of the economic prosperity of both Republicans and Democrats in recent times has been Fed-related. It's been an activist fed infusing enormous amounts of capital Very low interest and rates. keeping interest rates at almost zero. There are about 10% of American companies and corporations that would not be in business today if finance charges were not as muted and suppressed as they were. Um, so, so I'm not giving an administration credit for a great economy. The Fed created soil conditions that allowed businesses to be prop, to be more profitable than they really were by the infusion of a trillion dollars a year we don't have and artificially low interest rates. And, and 
Dave, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that this is Joe Biden's economy and not look back at Donald Trump as a contributor and then turn around and say, but Donald Trump had a great economy and not look back at Obama and say, well, the trend was going up. But they, Jeff, but Jeff, is it fair to say this is a fed economy? I mean, this is not a Trump economy, uh, a Biden economy that since 2008, when the world blew up, this has been a fed oriented economy. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. Okay. And that, and that all goes back to, you know, if you want to, that all goes back to the dot-com bubble busted, right? Um, 9-11 happened. Like, you know, there are cycles in the economy. We've had some major world-changing events occur all during the time when globalization is happening. And whether you like it or not, globalization is here. It's not going to go away. Uh, but we are seeing a reinvestment in the United States that that did start during, you know, Republican and Democrat administrations. Like we, we've gone through this before and we'll come out of it again. Um, but I, I still wouldn't bet against America. I never would. We're, we're going to win. We're 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 going to China's falling apart. We just have to you know, they can't compete with us either. Um, I will say this, your conversation about slavery in the Civil War, to change topic, this is why I called. It, it's funny to me, have you guys ever heard of the term indentured servant? Sure. Do you know what percentage of people from the South before slavery were actually indentured servants? A large percentage. Over 70%. Mm-hmm. I knew it was over 50. We, we had slavery in this country. It was Germans, it was Europeans, it was people who owed their whole existence and worked for these plantations in the South, and it, and it happened in the North also. But the Constitution and the Founding Fathers broke that mold. They gave people a way out of the indentured servitude. And what did, what did the free market do? It went and found cheap, cheap labor. So when, when we talk about, like, um, this way of life that the South had, you, if you think it was good before slavery, it wasn't. It was a bunch of people who were suppressed, couldn't move freely, were owned by plantation owners. And it was the same thing in the North. And and finally, you know, it, the human rights were, were maybe a little better, but it wasn't good. And so when you ask yourself, was it a poor man's war? No, th- those people were still really indentured servants to the South still. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to go back real quick uh, to, to the point Jeff made about the, the dot-com bubble burst, 9-11, 2008, the world blows up, the pandemic. Here's my argument. We've had 25 years of economic anxiety. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, my, 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 my argument is the federal government tried to kick the can of pain. In, in other words, it didn't allow us to experience the pain we should have had. I mean, if we were truly the free market, the, the dot-com bubble bursting would have caused more economic hardship than it did. Um, 9-11 would have caused more economic hardship than it did. We almost outlawed recessions. 
we tried to figure out a way to, to utilize an activist fed to minimize the true mistakes that were made of what the consequences should have been. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and I understand it. I mean, who wants the pain and you think that goes not, along with making... not going to be able to do it this time? You can't time? do it forever. I mean, I don't think Jeff believes that. I certainly don't believe that. Josh kind of agrees with me now that there is built-up demand <laughs> in economic hardship and pain, and it's coming at some point in time. It's not going to be a housing bubble, dot-com bubble, you know, a, a, you know, spending a trillion dollars in places around the world that you could argue whether American security and safety was at risk or not. It's going to be a debt bubble. It's going to be an everything bubble. And, and you know, who, what, what does that look like? There's no precedent. I mean, you know, Joe said there is, but not to this extent, not to with, with these amounts of money. Um, so, so that's my, I'll agree. We've had 25 years of, of situations that were not, we couldn't control some of these things and they happen, but the fed tried to do everything it could to avoid a proportional share of hardship to the mistakes we made. And you can't do that forever. Take a break back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Morning, Verd. Good morning, man. Uh, great day in Somerville yesterday, Ken. Uh, just uh overflow crowd. I don't know. Uh, they said it's completely sold out, uh, even though we don't charge for tickets. But it was just an amazing crowd, a uh, tremendous amount of people, disabled people in wheelchairs, rolling wheelchairs, walkers that uh, stood out in that sun. And even though it wasn't supposed to be hot, it wound up turning out to be pretty hot down there on the other side of uh uh, the boat manufacturing facility, and uh, it was just a huge crowd. Uh, uh, a lot of state and federal people were there to support President Trump. Uh, Ken, back to talking about the deficit of President Trump, and that early on in his speech, he did bring up that uh, we had to get a handle on the debt, that we were selling our ch- grandchildren and great-grandchildren with a debt that they won't never be able to pay. So uh, he does bring that up, and he, he gave another just out-of-the-part speech yesterday about his plan to uh, grow the economy, uh, reduce taxes, uh, put us back uh, not only as energy independent, but an energy-dominant country in the world. And it, it was just a great event, and that's a tremendous crowd in all that heat yesterday. Bird, what do you make of Nikki Haley and Tim Scott still being in the race, former governor, current U.S. senator, and so many South Carolina office holders endorsing Donald Trump. I mean, I've been guarded about it. I mean, I was on the steering committee first time round. Um, I've been careful not to because I don't want to – I mean, I'm a South Carolinian, and I want to respect the former governor and the current senator. What do you make of – I mean, I know it appears to be inevitable, but is is there still some degree of, I don't know, I owe you this to Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, or you don't see it that way? No, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, they're invested in their campaigns. They invested in all the people that ha- that have supported them. Uh, they just in South Carolina, they on the short end of uh, a lot of the elected officials uh, uh, that are supporting President Trump, both at the state and the federal and the local level. And I mean, I, I think you know, once you get into the campaign, you want to stay with it. And and as you said, Ken, it's the inevitable. Uh, I think yesterday the poll to President Trump, he's at 51 or 53% in South Carolina, and Nikki Haley is second at like 15, but stands stands no chance of winning. And uh, I guess we'll see uh, the seven of them on the debate stage next Wednesday, and uh, I I would think like we talked last a couple of days ago that uh, some of them's going to really have to make a a decision that 
you know, it, it's enabled to continue to stall. Uh, I'm getting a lot of donations. So at some point in time, though, the money dries up and people realize that they're not going to be the candidate. And uh, I think that pretty much uh, is the nail in the coffin then, that it is time to fold it up and, and get behind President Trump. I think uh, there's no question he is probably the only person in the world that's going to be able to save this country. And and if you listen to his speech, you know, the things he wants to do uh, uh or, or, or some of them are innovative, some of them are new. But the bottom line is to put American people first and to put our economy back first. And back to some of your early callers talking about uh, lowering taxes and how it doesn't affect the deficit. Yes, it does. You know, uh, the Reagan model, if you want to call it that, the Trump model, when you lower taxes and stuff, people have more money to spend. Industries have more money to spend. The industries, in many cases, they will put in new equipment, uh, put on more workers, which is more paychecks. And then the people in the uh, in the public sector like us, the regular uh, regular people, when we get more money, you know, we some of it we might say, but the vast majority, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do something with it. We're gonna put it back in the economy, and that's that's what grows the economy, and that's what that's how you reduce the debt. Thank you, Vert. Appreciate it. You know, but what I don't want us to 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 have happen is to be lured in to this debate that spending is not the problem. Revenue is an issue, no question about it. The more revenue the government generates, uh, the more likely it is to be able to pay its bill and borrow less money. But, 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 and I know I sound a little bit cliched and as if a candidate would say, uh, Washington does not have a revenue problem. I mean, I understand deregulation and less taxation. I mean, we can debate trickle down supply side, the Reagan model, the Trump model, uh, the laissez faire. I, I mean, th- there are a lot of descriptives that apply. I mean, they, these are interesting economic theoretical debates. But, but the reality is, there is no model that exists that will generate the revenue necessary for the government to meet its obligations without cutting spending. I mean, we can't regulate an economy to the point that it can service the debt and, and, and meet the, the needs that office holders believe are paramount and important. It's just not going to happen. We've got to address spending and we've got to address entitlement spending. I mean, that's just, I think even those who depend on social security would accept it's unsustainable. It can't work forever. I mean, we've got to, address Medicare and Social Security in particular. And to me, Social Security is kind of an easy fix. I mean, not easy. It's a simple fix. I mean, there's a difference in simple and easy. The, the, the simple fix to Social Security is raise the eligibility age. I mean, that, it's as easy as that. Uh, I've seen some actuaries that show the spending curve. Um, you can remain solvent for another 100 years. If you raise the, the eligibility age from... I think I'm fully vested at 67. I think I can get full Social Security benefit at 67. Um, Take somebody 50 years old and say we're going to add 18 months to your work life. Somebody 40 year old, we're going to add 24 months to your work life. And you create a model that that as basically, I mean, it's been calibrated. It's been adjusted to deal with the the average life expectancy of Americans today. Um, I mean, you want to be, I'll say something as crass and crude as you could possibly say, but I'll do it to give an illustration. Um, the best thing to happen to America and its physical situation would be a 25-foot tsunami hit the east coast of the United States of America and kill 30% of the people over the age of 70. Ouch. Well, I mean, that's how stark it is. That's, <laughs> that's where we are. I mean, we talk about all these retirees that moved to the coast of, of South yeah. Carolina and Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and, and some of these other areas, Virginia. 
I guess, to some degree. And, and I certainly don't want that to happen, but I'm using that as an illustration, a very crude illustration of what the realities are. And we've got to address that in some meaningful fashion. Does that include privatization of Social Security? I would hope so. But, but we've got to address Medicare. We've got to address Medicaid. We've got to address Social Security, or we're not going to ever be able to balance our – we can't generate enough revenue to service the debt or service the entitlement programs that we've made a deal with the, with the American people. Um, I mean, Josh is 25, and Josh needs to know that he can't retire at 67 or 68 or, or 69. I mean, he's going to have to work until he's 72 or, or 73, whatever that number is. I mean, there, there's an arbitrary number out there somewhere that serious people, and I'll give Mitt Romney a lot of credit here. I mean, Romney's an elitist. He's a globalist. He's an interventionist. He ain't my cup of tea. But Mitt Romney is a thoughtful man when it comes to entitlement reform, probably one of the most thoughtful people in Washington when it comes to his plan on addressing Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Um, you know, just because you don't like a guy's policies doesn't mean he's a bad guy. And I think Romney has offered reasonable proposals and policy initiatives relating to our spending problem driven by the entitlement programs. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning, David. I tell you what, man, Josh, you you, you need to go to that gym, man. You have, may have to work out to you 80 years old. Despite inflation, uh, what do they call it? Bottom up, middle out. Sounds like something you used to do when you you, you squeeze your toothpaste. Bottom up, middle out. Uh, I tell you, I'll, I'll say this real quick about um, Spurrier. Uh, they don't like him in Tennessee. Uh, you're talking about Dr. Bolt in Tennessee. They don't like Spurrier because he grew up in Johnson City, and uh, I guess he betrayed them. But, Ken, this UAW strike, Trump won uh, Michigan by 11,000 votes back in 2016. That's the first time that a Republican won that state since 1988. So if you look at the raw politics, and I hate to say this, why do you politicize a UAW strike, these real people and all these issues? But if you look at the raw numbers, uh, Hillary uh, won Wayne County. That's where uh, Biden's going to be today, by 290,000 votes. Uh, back in 2016, Biden won it by 333,000 votes. There's your margin right there. It was 43,000 votes that he made up at Wayne County. So the Democrat operatives, they're in control of this country right now. And so don't let, don't tell people that we need to let them win again because we can't stand another four years of this Democrat operative politics. And if we do, we may not have a country. Have a good day. Thank you, David. 843-661-0937. Take another call before we take our last break of the day. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. You're on. I have to say David's right about that. I don't think the country can stand another four uh, four years of this kind of craziness. But uh, uh, talking about corporate taxes and everything, Ken, I was kind of surprised because you know corporate tax is going to be passed on to the, the consumer eventually. Yeah, that's just the way it works. When and, the corporations uh, got tax cuts, did your products get cheaper? <laughs> no, they never go down. I mean, corporations so, are not altruistic organizations. They're not well, there no. to make the world a better place. They're to make as much money as they possibly can. I'm not offended by that. That doesn't bother me. But, but and, 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 Mike, I think you'll agree with me here. Republicans are struggling right now 
with this line of demarcation between corporate America and the business world. I mean, the business world is not corporate America. The business world has gotten the short end of the stick. Corporate America's lobbied government to gain competitive advantages in the marketplace. Well, the business world's gotten beaten over the head with the stick as far as I'm concerned. But you would agree corporate America has not? Well, no, not not to the same degree. Okay. But they've taken some hits, too. And I'm watching this thing with the UAW and uh, automobile manufacturers. It's like they're, they're entering into a uh, mutual suicide pact right now. I don't. I, I don't see how uh, either one of them survives because if if they don't uh, use a little bit of common sense and compromise in this environment, in this economic environment, because we're catching it from all ends and we've got somehow we've got to get productivity back up. And the only way I can see we can really do it is to get back to uh, producing things like oil and gas and that sort of thing. As far as globalization yeah, it's already occurred. It, all you got to do is look at those super cargo carriers coming in in Charleston, you know, at 25 knots, blowing right into the harbor. But uh, those, uh, but uh, even those will get expensive to run. Globalization will not work if uh, oil gets so, to be so expensive that the, those uh, super cargo carriers can't get, keep fueled, and they require millions and millions of tons of uh, oil, albeit uh, poor, uh, lightly processed or not processed at all, all basically just bunker oil, and uh, to uh, run. But that's still at if it, if oil goes to $150 a barrel, uh, globalization is not going to work quite so well. Thank you, David. Appreciate. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, adherence to Biden's climate policies will cost 40% of UAW workers their job. I mean, that, that's, the, that, that's the takeaway. The, the, the aggressive and extreme climate policies of the Biden administration are going to cost 40% of auto workers their job. There's no way around that. I mean, the, the, the electric vehicle is going to be easier to build, require fewer man hours, and we're, we're forcing that on the marketplace because of the Democrats believe that, you know, we are in control of the earth's climate and these draconian measures are necessary to keep us all from, you know, burning to a crisp by the year 2050 or 55 or 60 or whenever the hell they say the earth ends. I don't know. Gore and Kerry changed their mind. Um, I've heard 12 years. Well, I mean, okay, 12 years. years. Um, we'll check with Taylor Swift to see what she thinks about it. But, but no, in all honesty, I mean, the guy that is going to be, I would say walking with the protesters today, they'll be walking, he'll be shuffling along. So when Biden True. shuffles on the picket line today, um, the guy that is, you know, the, the guy that is leading the shuffle, um, we could play Lido shuffle now instead of the Biden. Anyway, um, I mean, that guy's extreme climate proposals will cost 40% of those men and women their jobs. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937. The, the misnomer is that corporations are intended to employ people. That's not the corporation's priority. Corporations are built, created to make a profit, as much of a profit as they possibly can. And a part of making or maximizing that profit 
includes lobbying government, laying off workers, cutting costs. I mean, that's what they do. But but I think Republicans are in a, I mean, it's part of this generational realignment, um, trying to find out exactly where the getting off point is. Where, where does corporate America end and Business USA begin? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's probably in a different place for me than it is for some of you out there. I'm not sympathetic to corporate America. I, I'm just not. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a um, an anti-corporatist, but I'm not sympathetic to corporate America. I think they've distorted, manipulated the free market more than uh, more than we should have allowed. And I think the people that pay a price are those mom and pops who try to compete with corporate America. But but once again, corporate America isn't breaking the law. I mean, they're, they're not doing malicious, nefarious things. They're doing the best they can to maximize their profit. And part of maximizing their profit is to do what? Beat the competition or run the competition out of business. I just think they've had too much of a helping hand from government at the expense of what I'll call business USA. Let's go to the phone. Jam in Chesterfield, good morning. Yes, uh, you will either have communism, communal slavery, or you'll have family domestic slavery. The Tenth Commandment is very clear. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's manslave, nor his maid slave, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And why did St. Saint Moses, uh, or, ordered by Christ pre-incarnated, uh, to uh, write down the 25th chapter of uh, the book of Leviticus, especially verses 39 through 46? It says, Thou shalt not rule over thy brethren, in other words, fellow believers with rigor, but thou shalt buy the heathen round about thee, bond men and bond women, and they and the children that they shall have shall serve thee forever. That's two generations. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937, a very spiritual way. Uh, or religious way to end our to end our show the, today. Um, speaking of religion and spirituality, I had prepared um, somewhat of a lesson on the changes in religious, spiritual self identification by political party over the past twenty five years. We'll get to that um, tomorrow. But it is kind of interesting um, the percentage of Americans who describe themselves as being religious or spiritual and their party affiliations. It, it, it's very interesting, and we'll kind of delve into that. We'll um we'll dig deeper into that tomorrow. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.